Welcome to the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party with my dad and my sister Mary. Hello, party goers, and welcome to another episode of Sneaky Dragon Listening Party, episode 66. My name is David Dedrick. And my name is Mary Dedrick. Do you usually say the episode number? I don't, but I'm just excited that we have a, a double digit. Oh, yes. That's always exciting. Yep. So I just felt compelled to say it. Mm-hmm. Just as I will feel compelled to mention an episode coming up pretty soon. Uh, yeah, ju- just in 600 more episodes, yeah. we'll be at episode 666. Ooh, scary, as this guy says at work that Spooky. I work with. So I was like, ooh, that's a scary number. Like, why? It's a number. Yep. When I was in when I was in high school, yep. we were on the bus, and I remember we saw a license plate that was 666-DVL. Okay. It's a very good license oh, plate. Oh, yeah, that is good. Yeah. And unintentional, too. Yeah. Makes it even better. Yes. It'd be even better if the person was like a real hardcore fundamental Christian. That would be better. They'd be like, oh my god. I bet you, you could probably, you could refuse to take the, the license oh, plate, totally. actually. Well, when I went, they gave me like three options. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I made you choose the one that had Eve's name in it. No, I did that so I could remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I still can't, so. You can't remember your nicer? No. I, <laughs> I, I struggle with when it's a combination of letters and numbers, which they are now. Huh. I want to be able to get an old license plate and use that one, because that's so much easier for me to remember. They're always a combination of letters and numbers. No, they used to be just, like, three numbers and then three letters. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you're saying when yeah. they're, like... Yeah. But my- now they're all jumbled up, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I my brain can't do that. <laughs> no. Just one second. I just have to make this ice get out of this thing. Oh, yeah. I apologize, everyone, for that noise. I bet you'll cut it out. Meh. <laughs> oh, okay. Who knows? <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, mine is just the three-digit, three-number thing. But mm-hmm. it's it's re- the reverse of what it used to be. So that was confusing for a while. Because it used, oh, to be, yeah. used to be letters first, then numbers. Right. And then they, they switched it around. And they're like, we can't help it. We're, we run out of numbers. And everyone's like, well, I don't use old numbers. Well, people could still be using those numbers. Not if the the license plates are canceled. Like, yeah. Can't be- well, and I mean, and they make you return your plates when you cancel your insurance. Yeah. So, what are, so where are these floating around numbers? Yeah. And also, it's like, yeah, if... Why do you make us return the plates yeah, if you're yeah. going to do that? Yeah, yeah. Like, either don't make us return the plates, let us keep them, or, like, start recycling numbers, because you know which ones, which ones yeah, yeah. are cancelled. Yeah, we can. It's Phil. He's a real numbers guy. He just, <laughs> he just is really enjoying making all these new yeah. mixed-up numbers now. Yeah. Ugh. I hate it. <laughs> Doesn't work in my brain. No, it's interesting. No. All right. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, Mary. That's okay. With your mixed-up brain. Yep. I'm sorry to hear about anyone with a mixed-up brain. I have a mixed-up brain. Mm-hmm. I can't. I don't do very well with uh, numbers at all. If you gave me like a sheet of numbers, I would just ignore it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, what do you think of this? I'd look at it and go, yeah, it looks great. Hand it back. Yeah. Well, yeah, like there was an episode of um, there was an episode of the TV show Utopia, the the British one, mm-hmm. where one character is being forced to remember a series of numbers. Okay. And I was like, they're like, oh, if you don't remember these numbers, we're going to kill your mom or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sorry, mom, like you would be dead. <laughs> I could not, I would have, n- I would not be able to do that. You can't even, what? That's the idea. That caps into this w- a weird idea that you can't forget things. Yes. 
that you it's it's always yeah they're always there which is like crazy because if that was true then tests wouldn't work <laughs> right then everyone would be able to remember everything on tests well only though if someone was threatening your mom right be like you're gonna fail this chemistry chemistry test yeah um Without you, are you going to no to stop you from failing this chemistry? Right. I'm going to kill your mom unless you remember all of the things. And they'd be like panicking. They'd be like, right. "Oh, I'm remembering all the formula now. HCl, blah blah." blah. And right. then read it all out. Yeah. But reality is, is that that would make you even more forget forgetful because that's the, the thing. The pressure. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's been like proven like so many times that like torture doesn't work for getting correct information. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So people can resist for torture. Well, it's just there's there's no way to guarantee that the information is mm, correct, yeah, right? Yeah. Like they could still be lying. Yeah, and because yeah, they could still be lying, and because for them there's no guarantee that even if they tell the truth, mm-hmm. it's going to be there's going to be like a reward. A, a yeah. reward, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. That's true. I wouldn't reward the person. Just kill them. Yeah, that's most most of what happens, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, don't. Get, <laughs> all right, you can go now. Yeah. You can go. What, aren't you afraid I'm going to go tell the people? That you got this information now? <laughs> no, no, we trust you that you yeah. won't do that. Just bye. Yeah, you're free to you're free to leave. <laughs> I wouldn't kill them. Only say that because I would never be in that situation. Yep. Because I don't I wouldn't want to do a job like that. I was offered a job like that. Working in a parking lot. Ooh <laughs> It's like church. How could you sleep at night? <laughs> charging people for parking. How could you charge sleep at night charging people for an invisible service? <laughs> You're like all jobs are like this. <laughs> this is every job. Well, m- most jobs, the service, there's a thing with involved. You, you get something for what you pay. Yeah, but you, you get something there too. I know, but it's not really tangible. Tangible. Mm. You're leaving. You've already you've left your parking spot. You're, yeah. you're not leaving with a parking spot on top of your car. Mm-hmm. You're just driving out. So, you're like, I didn't get anything for this. This is very expensive. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure we've talked a million times about parking on the yes. show. So I don't want to. I don't want to belabor. <laughs> I want to stretch the audience's interest in parking lots to the to the to the limit. Isn't this a parking already. lot cast? <laughs> this is park cast. <laughs> yeah, all the parking lot information. You guys want to know how machines work twenty years ago in parking lots? I can tell you right now. <laughs> None of it is relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, parking lots don't really have attendance anymore, so it's a different thing. But mm-hmm. anyway, yes. Moving on. Poor attendance. It's a great job while it lasted. When I was in like grade eight, grade eight or nine. I went to a dermatologist because I had terrible acne, mm-hmm. and I was waiting in the waiting room, and I looked at the window, and there's this guy, a lot of tenant down below, like, and he was just sitting in a chair reading a book. Yeah. I was like, holy cow. Dream job. That's a great job. <laughs> and I never, like, went out to get it. Yeah. I actually just went with a friend who was applying right. for, for a parking lot during Expo, and she's like, do you want to come? I'm just going out of this place. I'm like, oh, sure, I'll hang, I'll hang along. So I yeah. just came, came with her, and then I was like, well, I'm here. I might as well, might as well apply. fill out the form. Yeah. And then... I was at my mom's office, or it wasn't her office, but where she worked. Yeah. I was using the typewriter to type out right. a, a school essay. Yeah. Because we didn't have a very nice typewriter at home. And so uh, I get this call from mom, mm-hmm. and she's like, this company's going to call you. They're going to offer you a job working in a parking lot. You have to take that job. Like, she was so serious. <laughs> like, as if I was just going to be like, nah, I'd rather just rely on my mom to occasionally give me a couple bucks <laughs> grudgingly. While also relentlessly nagging me about not having a job. Yeah. Nah, no thanks, parking lot. <laughs> like, kids love having jobs, you know? Like, when I was in high school, I loved babysitting because yeah. I got money. Yeah, when yeah. I was in university, I loved all my jobs because I got money and I also had an excuse to not 
be doing university stuff. It was like a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, jobs are good. I don't know what, it's just so weird that, I mean, if she'd called me and said, hey, the parking company called. Yeah. And I just gave them this number, so they're going to call it. They're yes. going to call. That would have been fine. Right. But instead, she made it like, as if I was just going to be like the first thing. Nah. <laughs> no, I just applied for a lark. <laughs> so long, sucker. Yeah. No, I worked that job. For a long time. Well, not that job for a long time. I, oh. got, I got fired at the end of the end of Expo. Oh, okay. Then they rehired me. Right. So I got to start at Ground Zero again. Oh, that's fun. They're like, you're not coming in here with any... Any experience or any, <laughs> no, uh, well, any uh, seniority? Any, any seniority, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just got to start at Ground Zero. <laughs> start all over again. Anywho. Also, I got to wear really stretchy pants. These tight pants are, like, super stretchy. <laughs> Why do you have to wear special pants? Because we had like a uniform we had to wear, but it was like the cheapest material oh. anyone could could imagine. Yeah, like oh, we got to put a bunch of parking attendants in uniforms. What should we use? Yeah, let's just get this yeah itchy fabric that feels like it still has oil in it from when it was manufactured. <laughs> I don't think I've ever worked a job that had a uniform that we all had to wear where it was good quality clothing. You yeah, know, it'd be pretty rare. Like it's always like. Feels bad, looks bad, doesn't fit properly. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. it's unflattering on everyone. Yeah. Like, universally yeah. unflattering. Yeah. Like, everyone compla- compla- complains about it all the time, right? Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only thing was when I was working at the dog shelter, some of the, or the people in the, sh- in the actual dog shelter part yeah. got to wear scrubs. Okay. And that was great. That's kind of cool. Because scrubs are like fine yeah yeah like they're they were just like scrubs that the company bought so that we got to wear so they were just like navy blue scrubs oh okay i was gonna Mm -hmm. say i was gonna ask do they buy ones like like pediatric nurses wear that have like toys on them and stuff like that oh no just like get those off why you're a professional get out of here so some of the women at my work wear not with like toys and stuff on them but the patterned ones yeah yeah they're more popular people like to be able to like have some personality in their clothing Mm. yeah Wrong. Rather than just wearing, like, a solid color all the time. Bad choice. Why? You should never show your personality You're to people. You're wearing a Star Wars shirt. Exactly. You should never show your personality to people. Otherwise, you look like a big nerd. <laughs> this was a gift, by the way. Sure. But you're wearing it still. <laughs> yeah. Still wearing it's it. It's a free shirt. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, I mean, if I if I left my job, I would still wear the shirts that I had from it. They're free. Curious? Mm-hmm. I was just seeing if I recognized anything. Then you did. One. I think it's just one. Oh, two bands, I guess. Well, yeah, anyway. All right. Okay, Mary. Well, so we are on the second side mm-hmm. of our third to last mixtape. And, you know, I was saying last episode, I was kind of commenting that it was a weird mix, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I was thinking about it afterwards. I guess I shouldn't say it's a weird mix. I, th- I think it ends weirdly on both sides. Like, I chose, like, two kind of strange songs for the, for the endings of both sides. Right. And uh, not that I don't like the songs. I really, I love those songs. Mm-hmm. Both songs I love a lot. The final song on this, on this mixtape is from my favorite album of, of that year. Oh, okay. Of 2017. It was my top, top album of yeah. that year. So I really do love that song. But yes. it's a weird song. I'm not, right. I'm not going to argue with anyone who would say, that is weird. And I'll be like, yeah, but isn't that weird great because <laughs> sometimes weird can be so interesting and yes. great yep and i feel the same way about the kate lebon song that finished side one which is yeah it's weird like mm-hmm. it's got a weird guitar solo at the end but isn't that great that sense of humor and that sense of and that sense of freedom to, to do a song like that yep 
you know, that's great. So, uh, I guess we'll start then. Okay, what's the first song, Dad? So the first song is, this is by a group called The Sundowners, and the song is called Edge of Love, and it comes from their 1968 album, Captain Nemo. So let's give a listen, everyone. Did you think of, well, first of all, do you know who Captain Nemo is? Didn't he, um, wasn't he the guy from 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea? I think it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but yes, you were, you were half right. Is it 20,000 Leagues? Oh, it's yeah. It's 20,000 Leagues yeah, Under the Sea. Okay, yeah, okay, yes. Yeah. Which is, I've heard from other listeners. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it, it still makes sense. It's 20,000 Leagues. It's it's a distance so that the submarine travels under okay. the sea. But anyway. Uh, yes, Captain Nemo. Nemo is uh, Latin for no one. Oh, okay. Also I think a point that Jules Verne is making in the story. But anyhow, 
I don't know why they called the album Captain Nemo. It does have a song on it called Captain Nemo, but I don't know if even that song has much to do with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or anything else. But what did you think of the song? Maybe they're just big Jules Verne, Verne Huge. fans. Yes, right. The next album, the next one was called 90, uh, Around the World in, in yes. 90 Days. Is that what it's called? I'm probably, I'm probably now saying it wrong, too. I think it's 180 Days. I made it half. I was half I was right. Just, yeah, I was just doubling what... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, maybe they're big, just big fan, fans of like hot air balloons, I yeah, guess. sure. Jules Verne things like that. Yeah, just related. They're steampunk before steampunk. Yes. Um, I, I do like the Sundowners. I like Always You. Yes. It's a very, very good, good song. That's a very good song. Um, but I, I didn't love this song. Oh, so you didn't you didn't like it very much. Oh, that's too bad, because I really... This song has uh, something I really love in songs, which is um, lots of acoustic guitars. Okay. And I love when the acoustic guitars have a kind of a slight flamenco or kind of sp- Spanish kind of feel oh, to okay. them. Oh, okay. I don't, I I don't like that too much. Oh, I see. Yeah. That's why I love... Um, Come up and see me, make me smile. Oh, okay. The uh, Cockney Rebel song, yeah. As I love the guitar solo in that song because it makes me think of that kind of Spanish flavored right. sound with the acoustic, like yeah. acoustic solo in the middle of the song. I really like that part of it. Uh, that's what kind of one. That's a, that's part of the song that really like won me over to it. You know, like first I was like, oh, this is a good song. It's quite, it's interesting. And then I was, that part started. And I was just like, whoa, this is great. <laughs> and I feel that way. This, but this, uh, I feel that way about this song as well. I just really like the. The, we use the guitar and stuff like that. And, and you know, what's fun about this song, like, Always You is a great song, but it's not the Sundowners. Like, oh, it's, it's not? It's them playing, but it's not them. Like, oh, this they, song was written by... Oh, like they didn't write it? Yeah. Oh, okay. They're just doing a... Uh, you know, they're given a song to play, and so they did it, you know. And it's good. It's a great song, but it's not the song. And, of course, the other thing, we've talked about it before, when you like a group, you're going to start making, like, decadent choices, because you're going to, you're going to like things that are not the common one, you know. So always you is, of course, the big, the big hit. Like right. you know, if you buy like a collection of Sunshine Pop, it's, it's going to have always you on it. It's, it's a very, very likely that it'll appear in there exactly. But if you like the band, then you also like the kind of lesser known tracks, and so you almost you feel compelled to like promote the songs that not everyone's heard before from something. You know, that's why you like the the you know the deep cuts are what kind of make music. You know, nerdiness, that's that's the kind of the essential part of it, right? Is that sense of like, oh, but have you heard this? You know, right. sure, you've already heard Always You and every Sunshine Pop collection, but did have you heard Edge of Love? And I think I was really like intending to put Always You on one of these mixes. And then this song came up one time and I, and I just went, oh, no, I'm going to put this song on. <laughs> that's just how it went. So the group itself was formed in Glen Falls, New York. Which, I don't know where Glen Falls is. I'm kind of thinking it's on Long Island, but I'm not absolutely certain. So I don't want to say that with any... It could be in upstate New York. Not absolutely certain. I know that they played, like, the Long Island area. Um, so they started in 1959 as the Sundowners. And, they, you know, they built up a strong local following, play, you know, playing dances, doing a lot of cover versions and stuff like that. And then in 1965, they recorded a single for the co-ed label. I guess it's, like, upstate New York? It's like north of Synecdoche. So okay. Synecdoche. Schenectady. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> or like just like immediately north of Albany. Mm. Like an hour north of Albany. Okay. Okay. Yep. And so, um, yeah, so they did a single for in 65 for the Coy label called uh, Leave Me Never, backed with a cover of Chuck Berry's Around and Around. And then in 1966, they decided to move to Los Angeles hoping they could, you know, kind of heighten their profile and get more, you know, get more some interest in the, in them. So, so there, while they're there, they, they cut a single for, for Filmways records called Ring Out the Wild Bells, 
uh, which had lyrics based on a Tennyson poem. Once again, neither song was written by the group. The the B-side was called When the Sun Goes Down, which was written by Tommy Oliver, who was a kind of composer-producer in the Los Angeles area. Mm -hmm. Mostly mostly, uh, wrote a lot of kind of like you know, what would have been called at the time sort of easy listening mu- music and stuff like that. Right. A lot of people, a lot of songs for like people like Tony Bennett and, mm-hmm. and other, and, or maybe TV stars and stuff like that who are kind of singing songs for yeah. like, you know, branching out and doing an album and stuff like that. He was, he was your kind of go-to to write songs that would appeal to mom and pop while you're driving around in the car. So, you know, but interestingly, he did a song uh, called, uh, he also wrote a song called East Side of Town and produced it for Melinda Marks, who was the daughter of Groucho Marx. Oh, yeah, so she had a couple of song, a couple of singles that she did. Uh, not the greatest singer in the world, but you know, just had the connections, I guess. Sure, it's kind of. Fun. I mean, you know, why not? If you're like wealthy and connected, why not see if you can sing? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah totally. Even just for fun, you know. Yeah, so I'm going to play "Ring Out the Wild Bells" uh, by the Sundowners, and you'll hear a band that obviously is kind of, you know, if they started in '59. They probably started off playing like a kind of, you know, in a kind of rock and roll style of the sort of Chuck Berry style. And then, what's wrong? Well, it was just kind of my shoe. No, it's fine. It's fine. I was just trying to lift it and it couldn't come up. Uh, they would have started playing music of a kind, you know, sort of, well, like the Chuck Berry song they covered. They would have been playing music like that. They would have, um, then they would have branched out. They would have been playing like Beatles covers and things like that. And then when they get to L.A., they get kind of immersed in the folk rock scene there. Right. And so this song really kind of plays into that whole kind of folk rock scene. It kind of reminds me of the song by Phil Oaks, which is a, strictly a folk song, but called The Bells. It has a similar kind of vibe to, uh, to that one as well. So let's, uh, let's give a listen to Ring Out, Ring Out Wild Bells. This came out in 1966.
right, so that was the Sundowners with Ring Out Wild Bells from 1966. What do you think of that, Mayor? That was nice. Yes. Yeah. has a real association sound to it. I think that was yeah. a band that really yeah. uh, was an influence on them. Because they were a lucky group. They had four really good singers in the group, so all of them could harmonize together and that, that is made helpful. a great nice sound. Another interesting thing about a band that started in 1959 and carried on throughout the 60s is they never lost a member. They had the same, oh, that's the cool. same constituent group from when they started to when they when they finally called it called, yeah. called it quits which is pretty rare mm-hmm. usually you lose someone along the way someone who's like mostly the drummers yeah mostly the drummers who are just like oh, i can't make a living doing this yeah plus being a drummer is boring right you know because you're not uh, you're not always involved in the songwriting you know and so you have less to say during production and stuff like that so mm-hmm. it's just a lot of sitting around yeah you know? and imagine too that the the drummer like if if when you're doing a song, I imagine there would be a fair amount of sort of back and forth between people. Mm-hmm. But I imagine that the drums are pretty not stagnant, but like probably don't change that much. Whereas I can yeah. see that like the guitar and the bass and the singing, mm-hmm. they're all kind of trying to figure out how it works best, and the yeah. drums are just like there. Well, the drums can be expressive for sure, but oh no, I'm not saying that they can't yeah. be expressive. I'm just saying that they sort of are the baseline for the song, mm-hmm. right? And that wouldn't change that much if they were hoping to like change things. If they're like, this doesn't sound right. Yeah. Let's like figure it out and like try some other things and change things up a bit during the song, mm-hmm. right? They'd be like, oh, like do that guitar part a bit different or let's try to sing this a little bit yeah, different. Yeah. They're really going to be like, hey, like drum that faster <laughs> or whatever, right? Well, they could. And the fills are, some fills are part of it. And I'm just thinking something I didn't really bring up last episode, but I was thinking about it when I was listening to this mixtape during the week, which is that on the last episode, we played the song by uh, Stained Glass, My Buddy Sin. And if you listen to the drums in that song, they're really inventive. Like the use of, uh, he really plays the cymbals in, in interesting ways during the, in, in, during the, the little breaks that the drums get. It's quite, it's, it's well worth listening to, just to hear, listen to that particularly. So they were in LA, they started playing, they were, they were playing at Ciro's, which was a really popular, uh, nightclub on the Sunset Strip in LA. Okay. And in 1967, when they were spotted by Mike Nesmith of the Monkees. Hmm. And he was really impressed by them, by their, their uh, live show. And so he invited them to open for the Monkees on their summer concert tour Whoa. that year. Yeah. And so they went on the tour. For a while, they were, it, the, there was two opening acts. One was the Sundowners. The other was Jimi Hendrix. But Jimi Hendrix was getting so much hatred from the audience for his act that he actually quit the tour after a few a few opening, like you, you know, I guess he just couldn't take all the booing, which can really start to wear, wear, uh, weigh on people. I know that's when Levon Helm was playing with the Hawks when they were opening for, before they became the band, when they were opening for Bob Dylan or when they were playing with Bob Dylan, you know, on that tour, Levon Helm just said, yeah, I'm, I'm good. And he quit, he quit playing drums because he just couldn't take all the, the hatred from the, from the crowds. Right. It just wasn't something he enjoyed. Yeah. You know, some other people had, I guess, were, you know, could take that kind of uh, right. antagonistic, yes. you know, relationship, but he just didn't didn't enjoy it, so he quit. Have you um Have you heard of James Dolan? James Dolan or JD and the Straight Shot? Of course not. Uh, okay, so James Dolan is like the son of a rich guy. Okay. Um, and I guess I think he was from like the Midwest or something, and started some company, and it got it like blew up and they got really rich and then they moved to New York and bought a bunch of things. And one of the things that they bought was Madison square garden. Oh wow. And they also bought, I think the basketball team maybe. Okay. In New York. Uh, the Harlem Globetrotters. No, not that one. <laughs> uh, the New York Mets or Knickerbockers. I should say New York Knicks. Or was it another team that's plays in? I don't know. I'm not sure. I, okay. I don't know sports, but, um, cause I think, 
Oh, I don't know. But but I do know that I guess there's like a, a thing where yeah. whenever bands go to play Madison Square Garden, okay. the opening band is always JD in the straight shot. Okay. Like whoever goes there. Yeah, yeah. It's always this guy who owns it. Yeah. And his band. Huh. So I guess he um, doesn't get tired of the, the booing. Because I imagine there's a fair a fair amount of that. If they're bad, yeah. They may be perfectly serviceable, but yeah. I always wondered about that. I mean, I think I mentioned on the show before, like going to see Van Halen. And they had a band called After the Fire opening for them, which I just had a hit song with their commissar. But After the Fire would be considered sort of a new wave band. Right. Whereas Van Halen were definitely not a new wave group. Okay. None of their audience were in, was yeah. interested in new wave music. Well, yeah, this guy, it's country blues and roots rock. Okay. But it's mostly, it's like him and then a bunch of like... Um, session musicians mm. that he brings in. Yeah. But it, it has been described as well-known sideman backing a karaoke-grade singer. <laughs> um, and oh. uh, another another description is that Dolan's musical talents are unlikely to endanger his day job. Uh, but he has opened for such bands as The Eagles, okay. The Allman Brothers, ZZ Top, uh-huh. Jewel, Keith Urban, The Dixie Chip, Dixie Chicks, Joe Walsh, and Robert Randolph. I don't know who Robert Randolph is. Me neither. That's a weird list. Well, it's, a go- it's a gospel band. It's but a, it's just it's like... a weird list. I like that it goes like from famous person to famous person and ends with Osgood forwards. <laughs> You're like, what? Rolling Stone included Randolph on their list of 100 greatest, greatest guitarists of all time. Hmm. They don't say where he was on that list, <laughs> but he was on it. Possibly number 100. Um, I'm sure he's someone, but it's he, weird. He's, he's a gospel band. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, oh. I guess they just put that in there for the gospel. Why wasn't that in the, somewhere in the middle of the list? Yeah. And you end with the Eagles. Yeah. Or you end with Joe Walsh or something like that. And Joe Walsh, by the way, is in the Eagles, so you're opening for the same person. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. I, I never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so Jimmy, yeah. So, they opened for the Monkees, and then they also played with the Monkees as for, for part of like, the, their fi- their, the finale of the show. Uh, they would come out on stage and back the Monkees, who would then do like a a kind of a medley of rock and roll oldies for the audience. So kind of, uh, you know, all these girls who are there screaming and yelling to see Davy, um, Davy Jones. Then they would like get, you know, regaled by these, by these guys who are older than them saying, Hey, listen to my childhood. You know, and play a bunch of like, you know, Chuck Berry and mm-hmm. whatever else. I don't know, don't know exactly what the finale consisted of, but I'm sure it was great. <laughs> There's a monkeys episode, which, which is like a documentary of their live, show and and kind of follows them around as they're preparing for the live show i think it's just like one of their shows in la so they didn't have to go very far right it's kind of interesting but it's not great because i remember as a kid being really disappointed by it a because well no there is a there was a uh album song played in it but mostly it was live music you know played so so over a bunch of screaming people mm-hmm. and then it was a lot of like but there's no like scripted humor to it it was just them kind of walking around or waiting at places and you know, in the dressing room or on stage or going 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 around, you know, wasn't that? I guess if you're a fan, it was like of that sort of fan. Yeah. Whereas I was like, just wanted the humor and the music. I don't care who these people are. Yeah. I want to see them tying their shoes. <laughs> I guess for I guess getting you know, they I guess they got a bit of attraction by being with you know, opening for the monkeys, and so they got signed to a pretty major label. So it went from Filmways, a record label I've never heard of and probably never heard of, to. Nope. Decca Records, which isn't oh. a huge label. In but England, I've heard of label. it. Yeah, you, you've heard of it. That's right. Mm-hmm. In England, it's a big label. In America, it was not. It was a bit, bit lower down. But still, yeah. you know, they had yeah. some. They had some. They had distribution. Yeah, that counts. And so they signed with Decca, and they released what you've said already is their best song 
Always You, which is basically a sunshine pop song written by Tony Asher, who best known as the lyricist on the on the on the, pets, on the uh, Beach Boys Pet Sounds, and then um, music by Roger Nichols, who was in a sunshine pop group called Roger Nichols and a small circle of friends, but also wrote a bunch of big hits for the Carpenters with Paul Williams. And also, to complete their association with the association, uh-huh. did I say their association with the association? Yep. Their association, association. <laughs> the association, association. It was produced by Bones Howe, the uh, producer oh, of the Bones association. Howe. Yeah. So you got to look in. So let's give a listen to Always You. Okay. Here we go. guess that you're a fan of that song because it's impossible to not be also i earlier said earlier that i was a fan of that song so <laughs> yeah. that would be a, an astute maybe not even a guess maybe just like a something you already knew let's give this give it to me Mary. just give it to me it's let a me, good song let me have that one yeah it is a good song and wasn't a hit what was not a hit that's crazy i know it is crazy right like there's something about sunshine pop i don't know what it was it just did not resonate with the with the buying public of that time time mm. period. Well, like, any interest in Sunshine Pop comes to us via Japan. Right. Japan were the ones who gave it the name Sunshine Pop, and they were the people that first embraced all these right. artists and kind of brought them back to the West, hmm. uh, brought them out of obscurity back to attention through, yeah. through by releasing them on their labels and stuff like that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and have we played um, "Thank You for the Music"? I, I feel have. like that's a very sunshine pop inspired mm, song. For sure, for sure. Yeah, he's yeah. incorporating that into his music. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. By sorry, that's uh, thank you for the music by Cornelius, Japanese music artist. Yeah, we have played that song, and 
and yeah, so it's weird. Like when I hear those these songs now, I'm just like, I don't understand why no one was interested in it. I mean, it seemed like such a natural carryover from the sounds of the folk music with the slight, you know, kind of combining it with the sound of the Beach Boys and giving it a, a slightly more jazzy, almost jazzy influence, you know, slightly more sort of different chords, a lot of like, yeah. you know, sort of diminished chords. Or Was it like late them. 60s, a lot of this stuff? It was more mid-60s. Okay. This is from 67. Right, So, okay. you know, it's sort of approaching the end of the 60s. But the end of the 60s is more associated, in my mind, with like kind of loud psychedelic rock where yeah. it's just a lot of like free form guitar noodling and very mm-hmm. very noisy and that kind of became more prevalent this this kind of like super professionalism level production and performance which by the way is really hard to do and also really expensive to do because you have to spend a lot of studio time rehearsing to get your to get the vocals to work you know like you have to have like an arranger come in and arrange the vocals and then have the band practice those vocals and then do them, you know, and do them well. Yeah. And that's, that's yep. time, time and money spent on, mm. on production. And a lot of times record labels aren't interested, you know, and, and as, as the returns were diminishing, they became even less interested in it, you know. So. Right. So the other thing they got to do, though, because of this, the, uh, the Monkeys Connection was they got to do a, a record of their own. In 1968, they recorded the album Captain Nemo, which was produced by the band's guitarist, Dominic Dimieri, who, wrote most of the songs on the album as well. And one thing that caught, I've always kind of wondered about on this album, there's a, a it's kind of a weird album. It's a bit of a curate's egg, if, if I'm using that expression the right way, which to me always means like a mixed bag, I guess is another way to say mm-hmm. it. It's kind of a mixed bag. I would agree. Yeah, I've, I've listened to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like, some of the songs are good, some of them aren't so good. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and, there's, and it doesn't really have an identity because it's yeah. kind of putting on so many different styles. Yes. That it's hard to know what, what what is this band like? What mm-hmm. is their what is their bag? Yeah, and maybe it's a problem for the band because they've been around for so long. They have so many influences, right? You know, stretching back all the way to 1959. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not not a band that sprung up in the wake of the Beatles. Yes, and are super into the into the Beatles and are carrying that influence on through the 60s. They're a group that sprung up influenced by the same bands that influenced the Beatles. You know, and so they're carrying that, those influences plus the folk rock of the, the LA scene that they arrived into, plus the sunshine pop that they became a part of through yeah. through doing that one song. Then they get this chance to do a record and they're like, oh, well, let's show everyone all our variety of styles and things that we can do. Cause you know, we can do anything we can have. I'm, you know, we're good enough guitar players. We can do COD Spanish guitar in a song. We can mm-hmm. do, we can do an R and B instrumental. We can do whatever we want, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, but yeah, the problem is, is that it's hard to have a band identity then because you've just, have so many different styles and it can feel like a pastiche and the problem yes. with the pastiche is you know it it is it's shallow and it kind of just slides off your brain and you're not left with much right and i think this band is better than that it's better than just being a pastiche band mm-hmm. and it is a still a good album you know overall the songs are really good on it yes but the song that makes me wonder there's a song in there it's a r&b instrumental and it's called plaster caster so of course it makes me think of the famous Groupie Cynthia Plastercaster, who you know, well known for her um, her thing, her art project of doing plaster molds of rock stars' penises. It's weird. A, there's a song there called that on the on the record. So whether maybe the guy heard about it, mm-hmm. and he thought it was kind of funny, and so he just called the song Plastercaster. Or here's my other theory: because uh-huh. there was this album that came out in 1969, yes, called the Plastercaster Blues Band. Okay. And the idea was that it was supposed to be somehow related to Cynthia Plastercaster and the Plastercasters. Right. But 
but it wasn't. It was just like a bunch of anonymous blues musicians playing a bunch of fairly anonymous blues music, kind of like this song or the song Pastor Caster on Captain Nemo, which is like this kind of a semi-anonymous R&B, you know, kind of like Booker T and the MGs style kind of song. Yep. So I, I've often wondered if someone contacted them about doing an album in that vein for, you know, doing a paid, like a paid project, just making like an anonymous album for this Cynthia Plastercaster thing that someone was putting together. Right. And then when that fell through, they just used the song on the album anyway. I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea. It's impossible to know unless I spoke to the people involved, which I'm not going to, because that would involve phoning people. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a curious thing. I've, I've often wondered about it. Um, much like Always You, much like their other singles, the this album didn't really do super great. Now you know they were they were a well they were a well liked band in the L.A. area, so people had people you know wished them well. It's just they never quite seemed to be able to you know crest that wave, right? Right. And so sort of the next phase of their career was they basically became like a TV band. So they would appear on TV shows as a band. So they were on um, they were on a TV show called It Takes a Thief, mm-hmm. which which starred Robert Wagner, where he played a thief. And they were they were on an episode of the show where they're like a band called the Raspberry Wristwatch. Okay. Get it on uh, no the strawberry alarm clock was a oh. psychedelic band. So they were the Raspberry Wristwatch right. playing playing at a a consulate playing like at a party at a consulate. Okay. And then they were on an episode of The Flying Nun, which starred Sally Field, with the actor Paul Peterson backing the actor Paul Peterson as Sunny and the Sundowners, doing this song that um, Sally Field's character, the Flying Nun, had written a kind of a I guess a little play on the the. Uh, singing nun who'd written the song Dominique Nick Nick. And so in the show, this kind of folky song that she'd written had been turned into a psychedelic rock song by this band and she's really embarrassed and all. And like most of the episode, it consists of the nuns giving her looks like, what? You wrote this? Oh, I'm so embarrassed. How dare you write such music? Eyebrows, eye acting. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of the, that kind of stuff. And then they're also in the Tony Curtis film, Don't Make Waves, which... Which also featured um, that actress that we all know about, uh, Sharon Tate, who's in that film as well. One of the three films she was in, I think. She was in three films. Hmm. So, there you go, Mare. That's her first song. We made it. We're done. The finished show's over, everyone. We're going to do one show, one song every episode now. I decided that's a better way to do it. That makes sense, because yeah. we do about an hour and a half per song now, <laughs> apparently. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to your next song. So, okay. So this is a song by Michael Fennelly. Okay. I don't know how to say his name. Fen- Fennelly seems correct. Seems correct, sure. Yep. And the song is called Iris Please. And this is from a CD that came out in 2013, which, of course, I had to get because of Michael Fennelly's connection to Kurt Betcher. It's mm-hmm. called Love Can Change Everything, and it's a collection of demos that were recorded between 1967 and 1972. Cool. So let's give a listen to Iris, please, everyone. Keep it up. 
By Michael Fennelly? Uh, I thought it was very Beatles-y. <laughs> okay. Uh, I liked it. Yeah? Uh, I thought it had a good, like... Had a good beat and you could dance to it? Well, it had like a good, like, hook, kind of. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, like that... Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty simple song. Does it, yeah. it's, a, it's a demo. It was not... It was just recorded, you know, with minimal instrumentation. Right. And just made... So someone else could hear it and think, oh, this person's worth supporting or worth hiring or whatever. So, yeah. So Fennelly was an East Coaster who at the age of 17 hitched, hitchhiked across America and went to Los Angeles, where he started playing in clubs, performing in clubs around town. And he came into the orbit of Kurt Betcher, hence my interest in him, and he joined the Sagittarius Millennium Collective. Let's call it that. Because basically, both those albums were made of a... Sounds like a really fun cult. <laughs> it does sound like a fun cult. And it was a fun cult. It was Kurt Betcher, so I'm sure it was a lot of fun at this time, where it was just a big musical family of people who Kurt Betcher had worked with through the years, because whoever Kurt Betcher worked with, he would work with again. He seemed right. to be a person who really 
was well liked by the people he worked with. That's you know? good. Like with the Millennium, he had uh, Ron Edgar, who had played in the Goldbriars with him, mm-hmm. and he had his friend, um, you know, Gary Usher, mm-hmm. and then obviously people like. Uh, Lee Mallory and Michelle O'Malley and Sadie Salisbury, people who played in the ballroom with him, mm-hmm. who then also came into the Millennium as well, for the most part. And so Michael Fennelly, he performed on, on Sagittarius. He played sitar and added some voices as well. And then he really came into his own on, on the Millennium album, Begin, where he you know, played on it, he sang on it, and he contributed songwriting. And he contributed some of the best songs, in my opinion, to Claudia on Thursday. It won't always be the same. And most importantly, It's You, which is, you know, the best song on that album, for sure. Right. He and Joey Steck wrote that together, all those songs together. But after the millennium ended, uh, Fennelly didn't really have anywhere to go. He was just living off a small stipend that he was getting from his publisher. And he recorded a boat, a set of dem- demos, about 10 of his songs in 1968, including Iris Please. And Electra Records became very interested in Fennelly based on this, the music he was, the demos he'd made. At the same time, Fennelly had become connected to this group called Stonehenge, who played around ta- town. They were kind of thinking about coming together as, you know, him kind of becoming the frontman for the group. And what's interesting is that Electra was also looking at Stonehenge. So he was interested in both of these entities. And it was basically like, well, if we come together as one, they can't say no. So, so Fennelly joined Stonehenge and they changed their name to Krabby Appleton. Which I think is a great name for it a group. It is a great name. For a band or for a character from SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> and so uh, Fennelly fronted them for two albums. And they had a top 40 hit with a song called Go Back that was on their first album. I'm going to play a song by Crabby Appleton, but I'm not going to play Go Back, their hit song. It's, it's a fine song, but I think this is a better song. It's called The Other Side. This is from their first album, which was uh, recorded in 1970, produced by Don Gallucci, who is best known to me as the producer of The Stooges' Funhouse, one of the greatest albums ever made. So he's got that going for him. But this is a good album, too, and I really like this song. And this is The Other Side, which is one of the songs that came out of the demos that that Fennelly had recorded before he joined Stonehenge slash Krabby Appleton. So let's give it a listen, everyone. This is The Other Side.
All right. That was uh, Krabby Appleton with The Other Side. And Mare, what did you think of that? Uh, I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. It's a very nice sort of a country beatle sound to it, as well as uh, if you want to be recognizing Beatle influences, I think you can hear quite a bit in Fennelly. Um, so after Krabby Appleton ended, he recorded two solo albums. One is called Lane Changer, which came out in 1974, and the other one was 1975's Stranger's Bed, which I have that one, and it's kind of a glam, kind of a glam-sounding album, which is, and it's, it's okay. Uh, it has a really good song there called uh, called The Sad Song of Louise, which is this really great story song, which I'm not going to play I'm not going to play it today, but it's a really kind of an interesting song. It is a sad story, but it's a, it's an interesting song. Anyhow, so shall we move on to our our next song, Mare? Yes. So this is uh, Joan as policewoman with a, a song from her nineteen or sorry nineteen two thousand fourteen album, the classic two thousand fourteen. So pretty pretty close to when this pretty recent. Yeah, this, definitely. To this uh, mixtape being made, I think this mixtape I can't exactly remember when it was made, but. So this is The Holy City from Joan as Policewoman, album The Classic. I feel like this was the clumsiest inter- uh, uh, introduction I've ever done, Mayor. Clumsy. Is it? Yeah, most awkward. Okay. I'm giving it the award right now. All right. Congratulations, Dad. You well, not, won. not to me, but to that introduction. It's being so awkwardly oh, done. Oh, okay. Anyhow, so let's listen to The Holy City.
Was uh, Jonas Policewoman? The song was the holy. Sorry, the song was Holy City. The album mm-hmm. is the classic, and the date it was made is 2014. Okay. What did you think of that song, there? Uh, I liked it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's, it's really about, fun. Yeah, I yeah. like the rapping. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, the rapping is by Reggie Watts, mm-hmm. the uh, comedian. 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 Let's put it in quotes now, because really, has he still a, is he still a stand-up comedian? Last time I saw him, he just kind of like did this sort of weird monologue while auto-tuning his voice and doing beatbox stuff on stage for a long for fifteen minutes. And I was like, okay, I didn't really laugh, but it was okay. It was interesting, I guess. Right. Well, I guess he's on James Corden show now. Okay, like, that's like his main thing. Uh huh. He does like the house band. Sure. Yeah. Sure. He is the house band, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, no, that seems to be his, his main gig now. And I think, yeah, he's kind of became more interested in the musical part of it than mm-hmm. the, the comedy part, which is fine. I mean, it's possible fine. that's where he was sort of moving ahead more too, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So Joan as policewoman is actually one person. Her name is Joan Wasser. And uh, she was born to an unmarried teen mother and was given up for adoption in infancy. Oh, wow. And so she and her adoptive brother were raised in Norwalk, Connecticut, where she, at an early age, began piano and violin lessons. Cool. And then went to university in Boston, or college in Boston, with the intention of doing classical studies there. But when she got to Boston, she became less interested in classical music and more interested in the kind of uh, tail end of the punk rock scene in Boston, kind of as it sort of morphed into the to the kind of grunge scene. So bands like, because that would have been a time that bands like Dinosaur Jr. and, and things like that were kind of starting to, right. to take off in those days around that, in that area. So, you know, she would have been there for that. So she began to perform as Joan as Policewoman in 2004. By the way, Joan as Policewoman, of course, is a, is a kind of a reference to the Angie Dickinson starring vehicle Policewoman from the 1970s. So uh, it's kind of a interesting that she took an alias as a, you know, to, as a solo singer, right. which people do. There's a Canadian singer I, I love quite a lot called The Weather Station, and that's just a single person singing, but she has like a band name for herself. But I think it's a good way to like sort of hide yourself behind something so you're not like, it's not just you, it feels like. But before she'd even started Jonas Policewoman, she'd already had like a long career in music. Mm-hmm. So from 1991 to 1997, she played violin for a group called The Dam Builders, Later, adding guitar and keyboards to her repertoire, as well as writing songs and doing and doing uh, vocals. And then in 1977, uh, following the death of her boyfriend of three years, Jeff Buckley, oh wow, who drowned while he was recording an album in Memphis. You know, who Jeff Buckley is right, of course, because oh yes, yeah. yeah, the son of Tim Buckley, yeah, famously. But yes, he drowned in an accidental incident. He decided to go swimming in a river in Memphis and. Uh, unfortunately, a, I guess a boat passed by and created a big current, oh. and it took him under, and he and he wasn't able to come up under, uh, from a, from got dragged under by the current yeah. and was, uh, wasn't able to, uh, to save scary. himself. Yeah, it's very scary. It's why people don't why it's not recommended to swim in, in big rivers. Yeah, just because there's so many hidden currents. Yeah, that, uh, and also why boats are supposed to well, like if if you're at like a lake or whatever, mm-hmm. there's usually like no wake areas. Exactly, for, but, but I mean, this was like a working river, right? Yeah. So there was like a tugboat going down it or something mm-hmm. and it, it mm-hmm. uh, swept him away and so he drowned and so Wasser formed a group called Black Beetle with the remain with the remaining members of Buckley's band and they recorded an album 
And then, but it went unreleased. And then she also played with a, a friend of Buckley's, this guy named Dave Schouse, who had a kind of a solo project called Those Bastard Souls, but he, he kind of folded in a bunch of people when he started playing live and they became kind of a band for a, a time. Uh, it also included Buckley's guitar player, Michael Ty, in the band as well. And so both of those projects are kind of like mourning projects, you know, there's right. just an attempt by people who knew and loved Tim or Jeff Buckley to kind of work together yeah, and sort of work yeah. through their, their feelings, you know, and their pain. So in 1999, she joined Anthony and the Johnsons and played with him for a number of years and also played with Rufus Wainwright on his fabulous uh, pair of want albums as well and play, played live with him. And then finally in 2004, uh, concurrently with, you know, doing live stuff with people, she started to become like sort of, you know, releasing her own music right. as Jonah's policewoman, uh, starting with an EP. And uh, so Holy City comes from her fifth album, the classic. Cool. Uh, written after a trip to Jerusalem. And so it's kind of a... The Holy well, City. Yeah. <laughs> Although the song itself, I think, is more a reference to how you feel about someone rather than how you feel about a place. Yes. But, uh, and yes, you're right. The Reggie Watts is really great in the song. It really gives it a kind of extra dimension. Of, yeah, of totally. Fun. Yeah. Okay. Next song. Next song. Unless you have more you want to say about... Nope. <laughs> you have anything you want to add, Mary? Nope. <laughs> That's re- sounds really definitive. What's the next song, Dad? The next song is Turquoise. Okay. The song is called The Tales of Flossy Fillet. Okay. And this was a... Deca- Turquoise? Are they from New Mexico? They're not from New Mexico, of hmm. all things. This is from Britain. Oh. This band falls squarely into the Toy Town Psych scene that I was so enamored with when I was doing these yes. the last the last few uh, CDs. And so it kind of it's, it kind of popped up in, 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 the, uh, in the mix. Uh, this was a B-side to a song called 53 Summer Street that was the band's first single. So let's give a listen, everyone, to the tales of Flossie Fillet. Okay. It all happened so many years ago Nobody knows, cause nobody wants to know Barbara Barbon, good old Sydney sad They're the founding members, the leaders of the land It's very sad That they should spend All of their lives They should end Flossie Phillip, she has just been born So was Hector and friendly Percy Paul When they're forgotten Take their place Another flossy With a different face It's very sad That they should spend All of their lives They should end If they could see They stand this on the xylophone, Bessie on bassoon 
Okay, we're back. And Mary. Yes. Let me have your thoughts. Sock it to me. I liked it. Oh, you liked it? Yep. It's fun. Yeah, it is fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good song. It kind of goes along with a song we played a little while ago, Run to the Convent by Dry Ice. Oh, okay. And other songs that, that I really like songs that are driving and rocking sounding, but it's just acoustical instruments. Like that song, this song is just acoustic guitars playing. Right. But it still has a really like driving sound to it. And obviously influenced by The Who, which makes sense when you know that this band, who were initially called The Brood, that was their original name. And then they realized that in about uh, 13 years, David Cronenberg was going to make a movie called The Brood. And they're like, you know what? Let's not call ourselves, let's not call ourselves that. Let's right. change your name. Yes. So they were formed in North London's Muswell Hill. So they changed area. all of their name to Turquoise. Yeah. Something that will be much easier to Google. That's right. And if you Google it, you'll get a turquoise band. Mm-hmm. You'll get all these pictures of ba- turquoise bands. Yes. But not the group that you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, like a bracelet. Yeah. Made of turquoise. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's not what I... So I need to go turquoise musical band. Yeah. And then you'll find some, some things. Mm-hmm. So, although luckily I have the CD, so I just read the liner notes. Oh, yeah. Well, that's easier. <laughs> Much easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and they are so like I say, they're initially called the Brood, and they f- were formed in North London in the Muswell Hill area. And Mary, do you know? Do you know a popular '60s group that is located in Muswell Hill? In fact, did an album. Um, the, the Beatles. No, they're oh. not from London, dear. The Kinks. Yes. Hey, second good, guess. Good that, I mean, the Beatles was a joke. Yeah, the Beatles was a from terrible, Liverpool. terrible guess. It was a joke. It was a joke guess. Awful. I can't believe you famously, that. famously from Liverpool. <laughs> so yes, they were friends with the Kings. They were friends with Ray and Dave Davis, as I've been told to pronounce it. What? Oh, Dave, not Davies. Not Davis? Davies. It's Davis. Apparently, hmm. yeah, it's the British thing, right? To mispronounce things, right? So yeah, they're friends of of them, and so they kind of uh, through that connection, uh, Dave 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 Davis mm-hmm. produced a bunch of demos for them in 1967. Why would you do that to your kid? Call We've him. talked about it before, but I just can't. <laughs> David Dave Davis. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's like naming your son, like, Anders Anderson. You know? It is. That's, that's kind of a cool name. Anders Anderson? Yeah. Yeah, it would be pretty cool. <laughs> you wrecked your own argument. <laughs> Can we go with, like, the coolest name? <laughs> um, so, through, so, through Dave Davis, the band was soon being managed by like, John Mason, who was the so-called car dealer to the stars. Mm, okay. So I guess he sold cars to the Beatles and other people like that. And his clients, the Who's Keith Moon and John Enwistle, uh, were convinced by him to produce an- another batch of songs for the band in 1967. And then another client, this guy named Tom Keylock, who everyone out there who's like a music 
music fan will be going like, Tom Keylock, that name is familiar, just like I was when I was reading the Who Produced It. It's because uh, a key is what you put in a lock. So that's probably what you're thinking Yeah, that's, the exact, that's exactly yeah. what it is. No, because this guy is very well known because he was a sort of a factotum, a driver, bodyguard, fixer, and tour manager for the Rolling Stones. Oh, okay. And... He also uh, kind of famously involved in the death of Brian Jones. Not that he caused the death, but he recommended the builder who was doing doing some renovations to to, um, to Brian Jones' house. Oh, um, and famously, Brian Jones was possibly killed by this builder. Tom Keluck maintained like the, murdered by the builder, murdered by him, yes, oh, or, wow. or accidentally killed by him right. during, a, during a scuffle. He drowned him in a pool. Oof, that's it's hard to do accidentally. It's hard to do accidentally. On the other hand. Brian Jones was a major drug addict. Yeah, was taking a lot of downers and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and so it's possible that he fell asleep and fell asleep in the pool right. and drowned, which yes. could happen as well. And the, the builder just happened to be there. The builder just happened to be working that day because mm. he was doing a renovation in the home. So yeah. who knows? Keylock maintained that this builder, I think his name was George, could have been George Thorogood. That doesn't make any sense because that's the guy who did Brad, Bad to the Bone. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The builder who was involved in this in this incident at Brian Jones' uh, residence. Which I think was the former was formerly owned Redlands or no maybe that, maybe I'm getting mixed up now I think it was formerly owned by A.A. A. Milne but I could be confusing one of the other Rolling Stones with buying that it doesn't matter anyway so yeah that's Keylock uh, anyhow that's why I, when I saw his name I went gee that sounds familiar and then I looked at him and went oh yeah that is familiar so um, the group signed to Decca in 1968 uh, and at that point changing their name to the more with it. I.e. hip named Turquoise mm-hmm. rather than the Brood, which of course puts you firmly back in the in the in the in the mid sixties. You don't want to be in sixty five or sixty six. It's sixty eight, everyone. You got to be with the times. This yeah. was the sixties. The sixties was like no other decade, Mare. Two years in the sixties was like a decade in any other decade. Huh? Yeah, I wouldn't know what that was like. Why would you say that? Having lived through last year, <laughs> I wouldn't know what that was like at all. I guess that's true. <laughs> I guess that's true. It was a pretty significant year. Uh, yeah, so through DECA, the band released two singles. One, 53 Summer Street, backed with The Tales of Flossie Fillet, which we just heard. And Frank Thoroughgood. Frank Thoroughgood, thank you. And then uh, Woodstock and Senia uh, were this, the second single. Both singles were produced by Keylock, uh, kind of like Mel Evans producing Badfinger to me. I don't think Keylock had much musical knowledge. He was just kind of using his uh, clout as a, as, a, as a satellite Rolling Stone person to... Uh, to, you know, kind of blarney his way through this. Uh, unfortunately, neither release had much success, and the band called it quits in 1969, which is too bad, because they actually were, like, a really good band. Sorry, can I just say, mm-hmm. I just I just briefly read the murder theory okay. on Wikipedia, yeah. and it seems... Tentative at best? Yeah, like, seems pretty far-fetched. Yeah. Like, it feels like people are trying to, like, create something where there was nothing. Sure. Like, I mean, one of the things it says is, in 1993, it was reported that Jones was murdered by Frank Thorogood. Um, and said he was the last person to see Jones alive. Thorogood allegedly confessed the murder to the Rolling Stones driver, Tom Keylock, yeah. who later denied this. Well, who said that then? If Tom Keylock said he didn't say that... I don't think Frank Gur- Thorogood said that. <laughs> yeah. So, like, where'd that come from? Someone was like, oh, I bet he told, Betty, Betty told Tom that. Yeah, and that then it's seen. just like, <laughs> like, who's alleging this? There's uh, no, yeah. but then I guess they did, um, they did a, a test. Oh, and then, sorry. And then the other thing was that the killing is alleged to have been covered up by senior police officers when they discovered how badly the investigation had been botched by the local police. 
Why would they do that? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Like, wh- why right. would... You're right. It's just the, it's the usual conspiracy theory, yeah. uh, theory of you can't... Where it's, you can't prove a negative if you just keep denying that, you know, that things were done... Mm-hmm. If you keep saying things were done improperly, with, but without any evidence. But you just, it can't be any evidence because it was done improperly, so they covered it up. It's obvious. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, they, and they covered up the cover-up, mm-hmm. you know? And then when they tried to uncover that, they covered that up too. Of course. And worst of all, they... That's t- why the, That's why the, we're not allowed to put a Wikipedia article on here <laughs> talking about all this stuff, because they're covering it up. <laughs> and then, I think they... I think they... Um, In 2009, they... Disinterred Brian Jones and... Well, they, they of, conducted a review. Okay. And oh, just review, so they didn't actually do a test on him. I don't know. It probably would have been impossible to prove what kind of substances were in his body by this point. Anyway. Yeah. But it said that there was no new evidence to suggest, because I guess um, an investigative journalist had like given them some like new evidence or whatever yeah and so they like reopened or connected yeah did a case review and it said that there was no new evidence to suggest that the coroner's original verdict of death by misadventure was incorrect Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean his life at that time was a complete mess Mm -hmm. you know he was a mess his life was a mess i invite people if they have the stamina to watch some of uh john luke goddard's film what is it called seven by seven or whatever the one where they're they're filming um their satanic majesty's request and brian jones is there and he's just completely like out of it like absolutely useless okay you know and you could you know someone like that you know yeah like people are like you know i've heard reports from people say like well he was too strong a swimmer to have that happen to him in a pool yeah we're like did you see him at the near the end of his life he wasn't a strong person anymore and then it also (laughs) said the coroner's report yeah noted that his liver and heart were heavily enlarged by like drug and alcohol Mm -hmm. abuse Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. the years so it's like yeah, he was not doing well, you no. know. No, he and he wasn't a great person. Hmm. So he he didn't ha- he didn't have people to support him either. Yeah, it's hard. It is. It is. All right. So um, let's let's finish off with. Okay. Choice, sorry, so. I just thought that was interesting. They're the they're who we want to talk about. We don't want the Rolling Stones to stomp over everything. That's in, true. In human history. Those guys. The longer they live, the more they their tentacles reach out. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, neither release were hits unfortunately but i do think it's sad because i do think the band were actually quite interesting and brought you know had had, had something to say you know right had, had a sound uh, i thought it'd be kind of fun to play a song i guess this is the demo they did as the brood it's called wrong way uh, i'm not too sure um who produced this demo so i'm gonna look it up while we play it this is uh wrong way from the fir- uh once again from the collection the further adventures of Flossie fillet this came out in 2006 uh just kind of was a collection that you know gathered up all the stray bits and pieces of the of the group that is out there and put it in there, including the the two singles plus some tracks that were recorded that weren't released, and then some stuff that they did for their demos. So this is the uh, this is Wrong Way by the Brood. <laughs> For you 
we're back. That was The Brood with uh, Wrong Way, which I think is, is okay. I just played it sort of a, a more out of uh, archaeological interest than I, th- than I think it's a great track. Hmm. This was produced by Dave Davies, so it does have a bit of a kink sound to me, actually, I think. Uh, what do you think, Mayor? I liked it. I thought it was fun. Okay. Yeah. Cool. cool. Uh, there was a little, uh, there's some harmonies there that went a little as- astray during mm. the singing, which, you know, it was just a demo, so they probably weren't too, we're going to sweat it out and try and redo it all, but uh, there are... There's a moment there in the song where it gets a little nails in the chalkboardy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was tapping my toes. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. All right. Let's move on to our next song, everyone. This is once again more more recent than Turquoise. This is from 2011. The band's called Metronomy, and the song is called Trouble. It's from their album, The English Riviera. Very well known. Here we go.
All right, and we're back. Mary? Yes? Did you have some thoughts on Metronomy and their song, Trouble? Metronomy. That's that's an interesting name. It is, yeah. 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 Um, I really liked it. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, good. I liked the singing a lot. Mm-hmm. But the lyrics were, like, fun in a sad way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it is an interesting song. Metronomy is an interesting project, too, because it started off as just like a teenager in his bedroom project. Oh, cool. For the band leader, this guy named Joseph Mount. Um, I guess he'd been drumming with a couple bands in school, and then he was given an old computer by his dad, and he started using that to, to make music. And so he kind of became more interested in electronica than in being like a kind of a live group. And so he chose the name Metronomy for his project because he liked how it sounded, and it kind of connected to the word metronome. And so he, he liked that. And then after... He moved to Brighton to go to school. Mm-hmm. He uh, began to perform as a DJ. Okay. And so it was at one of these shows that he was doing, and he'd been recording music for a while, and he was approached by someone at the show and who offered to put out a record of his music. And so he's like, oh, okay. So he did an album, and his first album was called Pip Pain, Pay the 5,000 Pounds You Owe, <laughs> which I just like the name of that title. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't have bothered mentioning it, but I just like the name of it. I don't know who Pip Pain is, but apparently he owed 5,000 pounds, so you better pay it. I guess Mount had to tour, and so he's like, that usual problem of bedroom, you know, of solo projects, oh my god, I need to reproduce this live. So then he, he got a, he asked his cousin and an old school friend mm-hmm. to join the band. And so, although he continued to write and record on his own for, like, the actual album projects, uh, kind of inspired by, like, someone like Prince, he continued to, you know, he would use, like, a live band. Although... Reading about this album, it feels like this album is more of a band project than it was like a solo project. Oh, okay. Cool. So, yeah, Trouble is from the band's third album, which came out in 2011. Cool. So, there we go. Not much to say. No. They're, they're a band. They're a band. They're working. Yep. Haven't had any exciting things happen to them yet. Not no yet. disasters have befallen them, knock on wood. Good. The next band, however... Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Uh-oh. It's not really a band. It's a, it's a guy singing, but he wasn't a band. Let's give a listen to Dwight Twilley. The song is called Baby's Got the Blues Again. It comes from his 1999 album, Tulsa. Oklahoma? Oklahoma. Let's give it a listen, everyone. Nobody knows The shape I'm in Needing a friend So I pretend you 
What do you think of Dwight Twilley's song, Baby's Got the Blues Again? Um, I thought it was pretty cute. Okay. Yeah. Oh, pretty, pretty cute. No, I didn't love it. Okay. But it was okay. it was nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm a longtime fan of Dwight Twilley. I have a lot of time for Dwight Twilley because he was part of the power pop revolution of the, uh, the late 70s. Right. So that puts you okay in my books. Mm-hmm. So um, his music career started, or kind of began, I should say, with the fortuitous meeting between him and a longtime bandmate and friend named Phil Seymour. And they met at a Tulsa theater where they had both gone to see the Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night, which is the film that launched a thousand bands, quite frankly. Oh. So that's a movie that made being in the band look like fun. Right. Like, it's one thing to think about, oh, it'd be, you know, I really like the Beatles. That's cool. But mm-hmm. they're just playing music. Yes. It's when you see them. Yeah. And you realize, hey, these guys are like, girls really like these guys. Right. I want to be in a band that girls like. Yes. I'm going to start a band. And girls are going to like me. Next thing you know, there's a lot of bands playing. Hmm. I mean, it's how the birds started. Right. They went and saw the Hard Day's Night, and they're like, we got to make a band. Yes. Not for this folk music garbage. Let's make a band. <laughs> so uh, the pair began to play and record together as Oyster, spelt O-I-S-T-E-R, of course, because if you're a band named after... We were joking about this a while ago. Were there a mollusk named band? Oh, no, I was talking about this with Ian, I think. Mollusk named bands. Anyway, Oyster, is it? Oyster. O-I-S-T-E-R. Uh, Twilly writing the songs and playing guitar and piano and Simmer playing drums and bass with both singing leads and, and uh, harmonies. Hmm. And they were later joined by a friend, a guitarist named Bill Pitcock IV, 
That is a pretty cool name. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool. It had four other people named it. Wait, wait, sorry. What was his first name Joel? Bill. Oh, Bill. I don't know why I thought it was Joel. I was like, Joel seems like a weird name to be the fourth, but yeah. I guess that's William. Yeah. Bill Pitcock the fourth. So after a slate detour through Memphis, Tennessee, and Tupelo, Mississippi, they're kind of doing a backwards Presley, because of course Presley came from Tupelo and then moved to Memphis. They went from Memphis to Tupelo. The group then headed to Los Angeles in 1974 to find a label that would be interested in them. And when they got there, they signed with Shelter Records, which was a record label that wasn't big, super big. It was, um, but it did have it did have offices in LA, but also very importantly, it had offices in Tulsa. Oh, okay. And it was co-owned by Tulsa native Leon Russell, who uh, through the 60s was a famous session musician. You know, kind of part of the Wrecking Crew thing. Played with right. Phil Spector, played with the, the Beach Boys. But then also became a solo artist. Well, first he started a group called the Asylum Choir with another with another musician. And then he became a solo solo artist. And then an Englishman named Denny Cordell. Now, Denny Cordell, I can sum up very easily with the phrase that my dad once told me about Englishmen. Okay. Which is, you can't tell an Englishman from far away. <laughs> and up close, you can't tell him anything. <laughs> so... Cordell was a very opinionated, very belligerent person. Right. Who, once you were in his claws, you were, it was very hard to get away from him. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing Cordell did was change the band's name from Oyster to the Dwight Twilley Band. Okay. It's a better name. Right. But the problem is... It has his name in it, which is... It has the name of one person in it. Yes. And so that left Phil Seymour out of the equation. Because here's a person who had an equal partnership. Yes, he wasn't writing all the songs, but he was part of the arrangements. He was part of the the sound of the group. Mm-hmm. And suddenly... He's not. He's not. Yes. And so um, that had a long-term damage to the group as of well. Course. But but like I was saying, the Tulsa headquarters allowed the band to work away from the label... Super- Away from label supervision, mm-hmm. they could go to Tulsa and they kind of they self-produce themselves without the label's knowledge in many cases. But what's interesting is when they produce themselves, they always produce themselves as Oyster. Right. So I wouldn't say produced by Dwight, Dwight Twilley and, and Phil Seymour. I would say yes. produced by Oyster. Um, then the band was sent to England okay. to, with, to work with this producer named Robin Cable and at Trident Studios. And they were going to like, you know, put together an album there. Mm-hmm. They had one single in the... In the in, in, uh, kind of in the works, called um, I'm on Fire. And so while they were in England, the the single came out, and, you know, which wasn't, like, great planning, because the band wasn't in the States to promote it, but the the, the label released it anyway. Right. And despite this handicap, the song reached number 16 on the, oh, that's on the great. Billboard charts. That's great. And so... Good for them. Yeah. So they... Uh, so the stuff that was being done in England was shelved... And was kind of moved to be the next album, right. which was going to be called, which was kind of given the name The B Album. Okay. B is in second letter. Right. And the band returned to T- Tulsa, where Russell had them record new tracks at his 40 track studio in Tulsa, his home studio. And so they put together songs. They had a new single ready to go. They performed it on American Bandstand. And the song was called Shark Bracket in the Dark and Bracket. I like that name. But. The success of Jaws caused Cordell and Shelter to reject the single. Oh. Afraid the group would be perceived as a cash and novelty act. Right. Which is silly because they'd already had a hit single in the charts. Yes. They had other songs in the pipeline. Yeah. And this was a perfect opportunity to hitch their wagon to a star. Yes. You know, and take advantage of a song that had nothing to do with sharks. Yeah. Other than the name. Yes. It's not about a shark. It's Why, just, yeah. Also, they could have even just changed the title. Yeah. Right. 
But no, they canceled the, the single. Silly. Why are... And so, why are labels the way they I, yeah, are? Yeah, it's just so frustrating every time. <laughs> so this was the song that was chosen as a single. I'm going to play it now. It's called You Were So Warm. And this comes from their, their first album, Sincerely, that came out in 1976. So this is the Dwight Twilley band with You Were So Warm. Let's give it a listen. back that was you were so warm by the dwight twilley band pretty good song hey mayor yeah i liked it really classic pop music construct rock music construction there just the whole yeah. whole thing is just like textbook well-written song uh, dwight twilley was quite quite a good songwriter unfortunately when you change horses in midstream it can cause some problems the other thing that can cause problems is when your label collapses right and so what happened was this single came out and then it didn't chart because there was no distribution for the record. Shelter got caught itself up in a lawsuit between Cordell and Russell. They were fighting with each other. And then the band's completed record went unreleased for 10 months. Wow. Because Shelter then decided to switch distribution from MCA to ABC Records, which comedically is, well, it's funny to me knowing that label history is because MCA later bought ABC Records. So it was the moot point, really, and in some ways. But anyhow, at this time... Uh, they switched to ABC Records. And then in all this confusion, the intended second album, the B album, was never released. And then when the album finally came out, the, any momentum from I'm on Fire 
uh, was had dissipated, and the album failed to chart, peaking at number 138 on the charts. And because no one got to hear You Were So Warm, which personally I think is a better song than I'm On Fire, which I like well enough. It's got a great guitar bit to it. But I really like the classic like pop construction of, of You Were So Warm. Well, I'm On Fire was a big hit, but no one could get the next Dwight Twilley Band song. So after they released Sincerely and it you know, didn't go anywhere, then Shelter then switched distribution rights again, this time to Arista Records. But ABC exercised its option and elected to keep Shelter artists J.J. Kale and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, who are friends of Twilly and Seymour. Right. And this left only the Twilly Band on Arista, a label whose signature artist at that time was Barry Manilow. Right. So you can see the kind of support that a group that was playing, you know, in a, in a rock vein was yeah. going to get from a label who is run by Schlockmeister Clive Davis, <laughs> you know, who, you know, we talked about him a little while ago. There's this hagiography documentary about him that when you watch it, you realize he had nothing to contribute musically to anything. His, this is his idea of running a hagiography? Uh, when you were sainted. He was sainted? Well, it's an attempt to saint him, this documentary. Oh. I don't mean literally. I just mean, you know, I'm speaking oh, metaphorically there. Oh, okay. Sorry. When you watch a documentary that's just a giant suck up to yeah, someone. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought it was like an actual no, documentary no. about. I thought, no, sorry. The way I interpreted it was that it was a documentary about like the like saints, like the yeah. study of saints. Yeah, yeah. That for some reason they like interviewed this guy. Yeah, I was no, like, no, maybe no. he had no. like a side hobby of being. Uh, yeah, no. I was listening. I was just. <laughs> confused by it? I'm not sorry. Maybe other people were confused. Realizing. What I meant was, what I meant, everyone, was that this documentary about uh-huh. Clive Davis yes. was a hagiography. Uh huh. That he does not deserve the the encomiums he gets from people. Okay. And all the plaudits and all the and all the awards and things that are shoveled onto his head. Right. Because he is just a schlockmeister, mm-hmm. lawyer, mm-hmm. who managed through the mere fact that he was there yeah. to become the president of Columbia Records. Right. At a time when the music scene was so was so fecund, was so fertile mm-hmm. that you could pretty much, you know, unless you're an idiot, throw a dart with on a blindfold on and hit a great musician. So yeah, yeah they signed Santana when he was there. Yeah, they had jo- Janis Joplin. Yeah. Whoop de doo. Yeah. Whoop de doo. <laughs> because pretty soon, well, and I mean, the other thing is, like, let's be real. Yeah. As a label. Yeah. Like the most helpful thing you can do is not sabotage your band. <laughs> you know, like what are they sure, doing? Like sure. it's the it's about the music, right? It's yeah. not. Yeah. Like, they provide the money for that, sure. but it's not like, yeah, it's not like they're doing anything helpful, Yeah, you know? And, like, even, like, in the Barry Manilow part of the movie, and I, I'm not the world's biggest fan of Barry Manilow. He's fine. He's fine. But the whole thing is, like, I signed Barry. I gave him one one piece of advice. Have a hit single. <laughs> That's what you need. Yeah. Barry. You know? But Barry Manilow's like, I want to write my own music. Yeah. I want to be my own guy. No. You've got to have a hit single. Then you can write your own music. Yeah. I want you to play the song Mandy by this other guy. Mm-hmm. This will be a big hit for you. Then you can do your own thing. You had a big hit. You need another big hit. I want you to do this song. I write the songs by a different guy again, not by you. Play the song and have a big hit. You can do your own song. You got another hit. I want you to do another song not written by you and you'll have another hit. That I mean, if your only thing you're telling people is to have a hit, that's not advice. No. That's not career guidance. Yeah. That's just... That's personal sabotage yeah it's like, if someone, this person. it's like if you go to like a career counselor and <laughs> yeah they're you're like oh well like i'm not sure what i want to do and yeah. they're like get a job that makes a lot of money yeah yeah 
And it's like, how? Like, what? <laughs> you're not giving me the tools to do this. Like, I know, like, like yeah, yeah, of course. That's the goal. Yeah. Like, Barry Manilow is not going to be like, no, I want to make a song that everyone hates. <laughs> That's my goal here. I want to tank my career. Of course he wants a hit single. Yeah, yeah. Like, what else is he going to want to do? Exactly. It's not advice. <laughs> it's not good advice. So their second album, Twilly Don't Mind which came out in 1977, proved to be another commercial disappointment. Because mm-hmm. once again, they're on a record label that, that doesn't know how to doesn't how know, to sell them. Doesn't know how to sell them, yeah. yeah. They're just like, we're here to distribute you. We're not here to sell you. I mean, they were still signed to Shelter nominally. So Shelter was still supposedly running the show, but I don't think Leon Russell had anything to do with it. I think it was just Cordell in LA kind of th- making laying down the law. Right. So I'm going to play a song, once again, from this album. This is the Dwight Twilley Band uh, song, Sleeping, from Twilly Don't Mind from 1977. Let's give a listen.
And that was the Dwight Twilley band with Sleeping. Mary, what do you think of that song? I liked it. Yeah. It was a little long, maybe. Okay. Yeah. No, I like a long song with a bit of drama in it. So <laughs> that's right up my particular alley, everybody. Yeah. So once again, not a successful album. And so at that point, Phil Seymour had enough and left the group pursuing a solo career and probably the opportunity to step out of Dwight Twilley's shadow uh, as a songwriter because Twilley was the songwriter for the Dwight Twilley band. No one else wrote the songs. So. Right. So Phil Seymour probably, you know, thought, well, I'd like to try my hand at being a band leader. So so he left. So he left the band and sort of in between leaving the Dwight Twilley band and starting his own solo career, he, he did some uh, kind of session work. He drummed for the band 2020 on their first album. We played their, their song, Giving It All, a while ago. He didn't drum on that version, though, because that right. version was the bomp version. Because they recorded that version first as a kind of so- a single for Bomb Records. And then when they recorded the album, they re-recorded the song. And then he also drummed for this guy named Moon Martin on his album, on one of his albums anyway. And then he sang backing vocals for Tom Petty on Breakdown, An American Girl, and Stranger in the Night on Petty's debut album. And then he sang on uh, the song Magnolia for his second. Hmm. And then he signed with Boardwalk Records in 1980. But his career would be dogged by its own bad luck, too. His record labels 
uh, founder, Neil Bogart, who had also founded Casablanca Records, uh, famously the home of Kiss, Donna Summer, the Village People, like kind of the whole disco thing, uh, infamously famous as the home of cocaine. Uh, He died after the release of Seymour's second album, and the label collapsed. And so uh, that kind of ended his having a label that he sang for. And so then in 1984... Well, he was touring on tour. He joined a group called the Techstones that was um, Carla featured Carla Olson as the singer, and she was quite well known as uh, doing a few albums with Gene Clark. So she had a band called the Techstones, and Seymour was touring was on tour with them, and he discovered he had lumps on his neck and was diagnosed with lymphoma. Oh no! And he died in 1993 at the age of 41. And so it really kind of limited his career. He moved back to Tulsa for treatment, and and had a much more much more diminished musical. Uh, career after that, just sort of playing locally until he uh, until he passed away. So I thought I'd play a song by Phil Seymour from his uh, time at Boardwalk Records. And this is, I don't know what album it's from. This is from a collection I have called The Prince of Power Pop that came out in 2017. Uh, the song is called Then We Go Up. So let's give it a listen, everyone. So that was Phil Seymour with uh, Then We Go Up. Pretty peppy, Hamer? Yes, it was. Peppy song there. Well, I just want to add, when uh, after Seymour died, um, Dwight Twilley wouldn't play any of the songs that he was involved with with the Dwight Twilley band anymore. He retired all those songs. Oh, really? Yeah. They, they died with Phil, he felt. so. Um, hmm. But he con- after Seymour had left, he, of course, continued as a solo act. He retired the Dwight Twilley band name and just became sort of recording under his own name, Dwight Twilley. And he could, but he continued working with Pitcock. 
on guitar and added Susan Cousel on harmony vocals. Of course, she was from the Cousels, the band the Cousels, which we mm-hmm. played. Yes. Uh, a couple of shows ago, at least. Yeah, a couple of shows ago when we did our top five hair songs, we played the Cousels version of hair from the, oh, okay. the play hair. And so that lineup released Twilly on Shelter slash Arista in 1979. And we'll play one more song in this little mini documentary we're doing today. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, Out of My Hands from that Twilly album from 1979. So here we go.
Alright, and we're back. And I seem to be drawn to uh, long songs, big big songs with uh, big strings and real real undercurrent of beetleness to them. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Like that the song we played from Truly Don't Mind Sleeping ended with a ended with like a little arpeggiated beetle beetle note. Of, you know, it sounded like almost like it was from Badge or something like that. From some uh, some sort of Abbey Road thing, or from Badge, the song co-written by George Harrison and and Eric Clapton for Cream. Yeah, this song had a real kind of beetle sound to it as well, but also that dramatic. String horn arrangement, which uh, is right up my particular alley. Do so you like that? I really do like that sound. So, yeah. Unfortunately, this album was not a success. Oh. And then the failure of the single "Somebody Somebody to Love," which didn't come from this from that album, but I guess was going to be on the next album, or was a non-album single. But when it failed, it led to the rejection of the band's next album by Arista, and so. It was going to be called Blueprint, which, and it had been co-produced with uh, fabled musician-producer Jack Nitsche, but it was never released. And then, just in case you thought that Phil Seymour had taken all the bad luck with him when he left, <laughs> uh, he's a real Jonah. So long, Phil Seymour. You take all that bad luck with you. We'll we'll sail this ship into... Oh, no. So this kept Twilly out of... Uh, he was unable to record or, or produce any new music for the next two years. Yeah. Until his contract with Arista expired in 1981. So... You know, once again, you know, his career is sort of being slowly diminished year by year. He then signed with EMI America for his next two albums, um, Scuba Divers, which came out in 1982, and then Jungle, which came out in 1984. And Jungle gave him, his career, a bit of momentum because he had a number 16 hit. Oh, okay. With Girls, which featured some uh, counterpoint vocal from Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. And then his next single, Little Bit of Love, reached number 77. But then he stalled his own career by abruptly leaving EMI America and signing with an independent label called Private Eye Records for his 1986 album, Wild Dogs. And then, having done that, the label owner of Private Eye was implicated in a 1986 radio promotion scandal, and the label collapsed, Hmm. which left him without a label. Yes. The record was quietly released on a a CBS Epic Records subsidiary and it was not really promoted in any way, which is so sad because this his that album featured the last collaboration between Phil Seymour and Dwight Twilley on a song right. called Shooting Stars. Oh, okay. Which is kind of a sad end to that. Yes. So Twilley then found himself without a label for the next 13 years. Hmm. He, he wrote a parenting book based on his long-distance relationship with his daughter called Questions from Dad. Mm-hmm. And so that was, uh, sounds really interesting. In fact, I bought it today. <laughs> I heard it existed. <laughs> I looked it up and I found it for really reasonable. So, so I went, oh, I'll get that. What, like he has a long distance, it's like long distance parenting or what's Yeah, that? yeah. I guess he wasn't in his daughter's life because right. he's on the road and he's, they lived in different cities. Right. When I read about it, it said he was thinking about this quandary and he remembered this quiz or this test that he had gotten from his grade two teacher. Mm-hmm. And I guess he applied that to his parenting. Okay. And I don't know anything more about it than that. Hmm. And I'm that's bonkers because I don't remember a single thing about being in grade two. <laughs> so obviously, it had a, made an impression on yeah. him. Yeah. So he uh, he wrote this book about it. I guess for parents who are uh, are in long distance relationships, like you and me, you know, are in long distance a long distance relationship. I live here. Yeah, but quite often you're like ten feet away from me, which is unbearable. Right. So. Yes. I guess that's true. I guess, yeah, I guess if you're, like, at work every day. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, what's Mary doing right now? <laughs> I'll phone her. No, I can't, because she's working, too. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write her a letter. 
Yeah, that'll that'll get there quicker. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this book sounded quite interesting. So I found it on eBay for very re- it was a very reasonable ten seventy seven, including shipping, and that's Canadian. Wow, that so, is a yeah, good price. It was a good good price. Huh. So. Well, the only it. thing is it won't ship till next year. No, no, it's arriving... And all the pages have been cut up. <laughs> I hope not. It said there was some highlighting in it, but other than that, it was oh. fine. That's probably so, why it's so cheap then, yeah, the highlighting. Yeah. yeah. That's fine. I don't care. And yeah. then, uh, so yeah, I'll try, I just want to read it. So so yeah, it's cool. Anyway, so so yeah, in 1994, he had an intended next album, which was ironically titled The Luck, but he couldn't find any label interest, so it never got released. And it wasn't until 1999... And kind of the rise of digital audio, and that sort of made putting out albums without having a major label involved plausible. Right. And so that was when Tulsa was released, which is the album that this that the song we played today was on. Hmm. Uh, Baby's Got the Blues Again. That's what it was called, wasn't it? <laughs> it's been so long since we mentioned it. I don't remember anymore. But yeah, I think it was. Mary, I can go back one page and look. Oh, okay. Or, sorry, two pages and look. Wow, a lot of notes. Yeah, that it'll get there first. It was called Baby's Got the Blues Again. Wait, no, I'm there. Mary, it was called Baby's Got the Blues Again. It's on the album Tulsa, which came out in 1999. I won. I got there first. I don't know. I don't think so. I couldn't hear you over the rustling of my paper. <laughs> well, it's your fault. Let me just get back to where I was. Oh, my gosh. There was a long, a lot of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, they're just a band that I really like. Cool. And I think it's really it had a really sad career, like a really unfortunate series of, you know, bad luck. You know, maybe some of their decisions weren't weren't the greatest. And, you know, possibly signing to Shelter wasn't super great. But, I mean, that's who Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers signed to as well. And they kind of, and they got over it. But, I mean, they were lucky. They had more hit songs than... than uh, Their timing was better than uh, the Dwight Foley band, I guess. All right. Next song, dear. Okay. This is a band we've played before. In fact, they were in my top 20 songs of, 20, 19, of 2020. 1920. 1920. <laughs> you remember them doing the Charleston? <laughs> No, this is the Rolling Blackouts CF from their album, The French Press. Well, actually, it's an EP. The French Press EP that came out in 2017. Was it a coffee-based song? I don't know. I don't know what the lyrics a are. A coffee-based EP? It's a guitar-based song. That's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called The French Press, everyone. Let's give it a listen.
don't you know, brother, don't you know? The jealousies and curse and what's worse is the silence. Strange, you're moving out of range. Yes. Thoughts on this song? The song. French press? Yeah. Uh, it was really good. <laughs> it is really good. The isn't guitar it? is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Really good guitar. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, they're a three guitar player band. So, But I think one of them just strums away on acoustic guitar. At least when I saw them live, that's what he did. He just strummed away on an acoustic guitar. And then the two other players played electric guitars. And that seemed to be like their, their way of doing it. But I really like this band. They seem to have a lot of uh, this kind of let go for it. And there's very little sense of song structure to what they do, but it just all works somehow. It's very, it's very fun and very, it's very thrilling. I really like this song. But basically, uh, I heard this song 
2017. This, this, um, when did this thing come out? Just one second. Yeah, it says I did it in October of October of 2017 that I finished this one. So, cool. so obviously I was <clears throat> cool. This was like hot off the presses. Yeah. This song, and I just had to get it onto someone's mixtape, and, hmm. and Trevor was the victim. <laughs> But it's really, it is a really good song. I don't have much to say about it because we've already talked about Rolling Blackouts in the past, so I, I don't, I don't feel the need to add anything to them. Their career, they've done like two albums and a couple EPs. So what can you say? <laughs> They're around. They're from Australia. They're doing some cool stuff. They're from Australia, huh? Yeah, they are. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to another song. This is a Teenage Fan Club. Maybe some listeners out there have been sort of wondering to themselves, does Dave like Teenage Fan Club? Is he ever going to play a Teenage Fan Club song in any of these things that he's put together? Mm-hmm. Here's your answer. The answer is no. I'm actually pretending that it was on here. It actually wasn't. I'm just joking. It's a different band entirely. Let's talk about... No, I'm kidding. This is Teenage Fan Club. Who has been wondering that? I don't know. People might be fans of Teenage Fan Club. Okay. And they're wondering. Why? Why do you say that? It just seems like a very specific thing for someone to be like, oh, I can't believe Dave hasn't played Teenage Fan Club. It's possible. They're very well known. Yep. Okay. I'm just saying. You'd think they're right in my wheelhouse. They're kind of like a Birds-inspired group. They Uh have a lot, you know, they like Neil Young, obviously, when you Mm -hmm. listen to their guitar guitar lines and stuff like that. You know, so you'd think they would like this group. Yeah. It's, we just had someone, when we did our listeners' comments episode, wondering if I liked Nap Eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and then I did, and they mm-hmm. were happy to hear that. So yeah. if people are wondering, no, no, I know, but I'm just saying, like, <clears throat> there, there are like infinite number of bands that people could be like, oh, I wonder if Dave's gonna have this. <laughs> so being like, sure. I know that you guys have been wondering when I'm gonna put this one on. Yeah, yeah. Also, I don't think people have any expectations with these mixtapes about what's coming. Possibly, but maybe they also wondering. I wonder if Dave likes Teenage Fan Club. Will he ever play them? Mm. And then I did. And you're here to say no and no. Moving on. <laughs> and I'm here to say yes and yes. So this is from their album Shadows from 2010. Okay. And the song is named after my cousin. It's called Baby Lee. Oh. I thought you were going to say Jason Dedrick. No. The song is called Jason Dedrick. <laughs> it is not called Jason Dedrick. Here we go.
right, and we're back. Mare, thoughts yes. thoughts on Baby Lee by Teenage Fan Club? Do you have a cousin named Baby Lee? I have a cousin named Lee. Uh-huh. And because he was the very youngest, he's a very oh. youngest child in the family, the very last born of all last the cousins. Last cousin? The last cousin. He is, was called by his dad Baby Lee. Even when he was a teenager, he was Baby <laughs> Lee. I'm sure he loved so that. The song always makes me think of him, even though it's I don't think it's about a boy. Mm. Um, I liked it. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, that was fun, cute, yeah. catchy. Yeah, this song is Got this, everything. This song survived my teenage fan club purge that happened after I saw them live, which is when I realized that all their songs, even this song, uh-huh. even this song, uh-huh. always has the same strumming pattern to them. Oh, okay. Because I always go do 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 do. Oh, like the beginning. Do, do, always, always, they always all the songs have that strumming pattern to huh. them. Well, that's that's funny that you say that because when the song started, mm-hmm. I was like, this song sounds so familiar. Yeah. And then it like started, started, and I was like, oh, yeah. okay, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, no, it's they, they always have that same. Uh, mm. I just have to listen. I just have to play it for a second. That sound. What do you, uh... Oh no, it's great. It's great. But then when you see them live, you realize that every song has that strumming right. pattern in it, and you're like, "Wow, they really, they really like that strumming pattern." Holy cow! This is sort of funny. Um, so they were formed near Glasgow in a in a town called Bells Hill. I'm going to assume it's called Bells Hill and not Bellshill. Bells Hill sounds more likely, right? Yes. Uh, in 1989, and they were built around the core of Norman Blake and Francis McGinley on guitars and Jared Love on bass with your typical revolving door of drummers coming and going over time. Um, and that was a long time, a long time core of the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, Love finally left the group in 2018. And it was funny, I was reading a music magazine a little while ago, and I guess it was one I, admit I hadn't read when I, when I got it. It's yep. got, kind of filed away in a pile by my chair. And I just never got, and got, kind of got forgotten about because of busyness. And so I was reading it and I was like, what? Jared Love is leaving, has left a teenage fan club. Oh my gosh. That's a, that's a crazy thing to happen. Then I looked and I realized it happened a couple years ago oh. in 2018. And I was like, oh, oh okay. Not quite as up to the minute <laughs> as I thought. Because I, I read before, like Norman Blake had, had, wasn't living in England or li- wasn't living in Great Britain. He'd moved to Canada. Okay. And was living in Kitchener with, a, I guess, a Canadian woman he'd married. Mm-hmm. And Kitchener, huh? Yeah, what a choice. Yeah, yeah, strange choice. Uh, of course, original name of Kitch- Kitchener? Wasn't it, was it Berlin? Yes, very good. Yeah. And so then he, uh, but it sounded like in the article I was reading in 2018 that he had left his wife and returned to, to Great Britain, so something had happened there. Okay. But yeah, they. but that was a core group for many, many years. Um, their first album was kind of, is, is kind of a very noisy and chaotic thing. It's very different sounding than their later albums. Right. It has one song on it that they still play all the time called Everything Flows. It's kind mm-hmm. of their show closer to this day. It's yep. a fantastic song, really long, very very much a kind of guitar solo song, so a lot mm-hmm. of fun to play. And then but with their second album, uh, which has the great which great name Bandwagonesque, they kind of cemented their sound, uh, which is kind of a combination of jangle pop, mm-hmm. which is a you know, kind of recalls the band's origins in the Scottish C eighty six scene. Yep. And C eighty six was a was a kind of guitar rock or guitar based sound that was very popular in the mid eighties in, in England. And then, uh, also Neil Young. And like I said before, Neil Young and kind of, kind of 
spiraling guitar solos they like to do and the, the occasional forays into into long soloing hmm. and stuff like that but uh yeah really good band all their albums are are really good like they're like a band that they're like oh that was a decent record oh that was a decent record yeah that was a decent record for, but for whatever reason this song is like stands head or, has, heads and tails above other songs hmm. by them i really love it i really love it i could sing it all the time even and i do yeah. okay let's move on to our last song everyone this is a song you're waiting for the, last the one that you, you you set it up as being weird earlier in the, the <laughs> yeah, podcast that's episode. Right. That's right, I did. So uh, I hope that prepares you. So here's here's the thing. I want to paint a picture okay. of the song before mm-hmm. we start it. This is going to be like a landscape or this is gonna be, it's gonna portrait? It's going to be a landscape. Picture a tree All right. in a field. Uh-huh. Nothing else is around it. Okay. No. Um, more, it's more of like a image of... Because when I heard this song, I heard it on a, on a compilation from Uncut, mm-hmm. and I was driving along. I was going to my I was going to the my hairdresser, barber. What do you call him? Hairdresser. Anyway, I was going to get my hair cut. Uh huh. I was driving along, and I wasn't really paying attention to the song that much when it started. I was right. dealing with driving, and that was kind of where my mind was. But then this song like cut through all of the garbage in my life at that moment, and like went straight into my heart. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh my god, this song is great, but it's also crazy. And I picture this song, Mary. So this is the picture of this song. You're driving along, or you're walking along. Uh-huh. And you come upon this church. Okay. And you're like, I haven't been to a church in a while. Maybe I'll walk inside and see what's going on. Uh-huh. You know, just a little church little in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Maybe kind of like a desolate area. Right. So you go inside. And as you go in, you notice on the door, they don't have like a cross on the door. Mm-hmm. It's like this weird kind of runic symbol. Okay. You're like, oh, that's kind of strange, but I don't know. Maybe they're just like... Maybe that's a Celtic cross or something. I don't know. Right. So you go inside, and the church is like filled with flowers mm-hmm. and vegetables. Okay. And it's you know it's all kind of set up kind of different, and you realize, uh-huh. well, this is not a. And then you're in that episode of Over the Garden Wall, this where is... they all come out with the no, pumpkin they're not pum- heads. They're not pumpkins. No. Oh. Okay. I'm thinking more actually of a scene from uh, Oh Lucky Man, the uh, Lindsay Anderson movie. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. I haven't seen it. But you should see it if okay. you have a chance. And you realize, oh, this isn't a Christian church. Mm-hmm. This is like a pagan church. They're mm-hmm. like worshipping the white goddess or the green king or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, I better sit in the back here and not draw attention to myself because who knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then you realize they're putting on, like, a church show. Like, they're having, like, a... Like a, like a play or Like something? a play going on the, on the stage in front. Right. And this is the song you hear. Because this is exactly what it sounds like to me. It sounds exactly like a kind of clumsy amateur theatrical production of a pagan... Of a pagan... Of a rich, page, pagan, pagan worship ceremony. Yeah, a page, pagan ritual. Interesting. All right, so let's give it a listen, everyone. I painted a picture. You can agree or disagree, but let's listen to this song. Bring the goose, my child. 
All right, and we're back. And Merit, what, yes. what do you think of my the picture I painted of this song? I think that the, it's interesting yeah. because you know what it reminded me of yeah. is Polyphonic Spree. Okay. Which I think has a similar theatrical okay. kind of messy element to sure. it. But this band is a lot messier than Polyphonic Spree. Like yeah. Polyphonic Spree are like, you know, have a degree of, I don't want to say professionalism because I yeah. think these guys are professional too. But yes. I mean, but they bring a degree of... of um, organization to it right. this music kind of puts puts aside a little mm-hmm. bit you know mm-hmm. and allows for a certain amount of you know weird sounds and yeah you know um did he even say who it was i don't think he even said the name of the song or anything about it <laughs> i don't think it painted the picture so sorry everyone so this is richard dawson uh-huh from his album peasant which okay. came out in 2017 so another 2017 song yep. and like i say this was my album of the year for that year uh and the song is called ogre okay and so on this album, is it like a what's that called concept album? Yeah, in a way it is. Okay. In a way it is. It takes place. It's basically a series of vignettes or stories. Okay. That take place in an imaginary kingdom called Brynich. Okay. Or Brunich, Brunich. I don't know. It's from an old Welsh word or old Welsh name for an area in England that stretched from Scotland to the Tyne. And the story supposedly takes place in the period following the Romans' departure from England sometime around the 5th century AD, or CE, if you prefer, that weird, that weird new nomenclature. Mm-hmm. So every song, every song title is a single name. So it's like either a medieval archetype or a figure of folklore. Uh-huh. So for instance, there's herald, okay. prostitute, soldier, mm-hmm. and then some are like less like that, like scientist and masseuse. Mm-hmm. And then there's also shapeshifter mm-hmm. and this song ogre so it kind of draws from different elements and he i think he kind of means it as being based in the past but also resonating in the in the present right in the stories so for instance ogre which is a story of a lost child has a subtitle name the parents crusade which is a fun kind of mirroring of the children's crusade yes um there's a song on it called hob and it's about a sickly child who's brought by his parents to a cave mouth where they pledge their they pledge their uh, selves to the these supernatural beings mm-hmm. that inhabit this cave. They pledge their loyalty to, the, to them and say, "We will do whatever you ask." Yeah, if you will help, if you will heal our child. Right. And then the child grows up into a healthy, handsome young man. And then one night, there's knocking at the door. Mm-hmm. And that's where the song ends. Oh, okay. You know, so there's these little kind of folkloric elements yeah. to the story. The, the shapeshifter is about a guy who gets stuck in a bog. And he can't get out of it. He's trapped in this bog. And this person approaches and gives him a potato mm-hmm. and leads him out of the, the bog into into the open. A potato? Yeah. It's unrealistic. Leads him out into the potatoes. open. And, and then potatoes. when he turns to walk away, the guy sees that he has a tail. Oh, okay. And that's where the story ends. So just little little vignettes mm-hmm. and stuff like that, right? They tell these little folkloric tales yeah. and things like well, that. Well, it makes sense that he was magical because he would have had to travel all the way to the New World. It- for a potato, yeah. For a yeah. potato. Well, but you don't know. Yeah, in the fifth century. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Richard Dawson's really interesting. He's a very interesting musician. If you're not familiar with him, he started off like doing kind of ex- very experimental music, uh, doing kind of drones and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He's really interested in African kind of meditative or African like uh, like meditative music that's okay. a lot of very percussive and stuff like that. Yep. And also folk music. A lot of people compared him to Captain Beefheart, which he doesn't really see himself, but... yeah. But uh, that's when you, of course, when you're... 
But it also says when you have influences, there should be a thousand influences in your music. Right. So that it's, you know, it's all sorts of things that are mixed yeah, up Yeah, you're not it. just like copying. Like you're not like, mm-hmm. oh, like my biggest influence is the Beatles and my music all sounds like the Beatles yeah. or whatever. So when he was doing that stuff, it was really done on sort of an amateurish level. And when he decided to become professional, he was, you know, he's already in his 30s. And he bought an inexpensive acoustic guitar with nylon strings, which mm-hmm. he promptly broke. And then he got it repaired, but he and he loved the sound of it after it was repaired. He loved right. it m- more than when it was new. Yeah. And that's become his like main instrument, which he plays through two different amplifiers hmm. when he's playing so that it's it's twice distorted. Right. To create a different sort of interesting sound. Cool. And this album, it's a little bit more pure sounding to me. It's, it's less about the distortion and more about the room tone to it because he's playing with uh, a collaborator who often performs with a guy named Rodri Davis who plays the harp and Davis brought his or Davis brought his sister whose name is Angarad it's her name to say Angarad Davis and their father John uh, who plays in the Aberystwyth jazz band uh, he plays trumpet and trombone and so it, so they add their violin and their trumpet and trombone to this album the rest of the instruments are all all played by Dawson. And then you got eight or nine friends together to do the choruses. Mm-hmm. And so that probably contributes to that polyphonics free sound. Yeah. <laughs> and some of them are f- professional singers and some of them are amateur. And you want yeah. sort of a mix of that. So there's not complete chaos, but yeah. also it has a certain looseness. Yes. Which, I mean, I think too, if you are, if you are lo- looking at it as this is like a story song. Yeah. Being told to people yeah you wouldn't have professional singers do that right no, no like it wasn't so much about being melodic as it was about like this is the easiest way to transfer information from yeah, one person yeah. to another so right? you're saying in that time period yeah yeah okay okay yeah i don't think like, he's that concerned about represent representing the time you know like none of these instruments are of their no, time no, I, but, I know yeah. but just in terms of like having those sorts of singers like mm-hmm. those sorts of voices i sure, think that that's sure. like an interesting yeah yeah like comparison that you can draw mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that's true yeah he's probably going for something like that and and yeah all the yeah it's a very it's a very um it's a fascinating it's a great album. all the songs are really it's a weird album because like this song is it starts off as i would say not very melodic mm-hmm. it starts off as very atonal but by the time you get to the end of the song you get that that stomping kind of percussion sound, which references his love of African music. But you also get that very arousing chorus to it as well, you know, that kind of brings the the song, gives a real kind of a sense of, of hope to it. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if the song, I you know, I hardly ever read the lyrics to songs, but um, I did read the lyrics to this one. They're really gross. Uh, the Are lyrics. they? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, well, it's called Peasant. Where so did that... you put the, you put my CD somewhere. Ah, there we go. Thank you. And let me just dig out the, oh, I did dig out the, um, the lyrics to this song. Let me just open the packaging. Peasant? I want Ogre. Oh, right. Sorry, the album's called Peasant. The album's called Peasant, yeah. The song is called Ogre. Well, yeah, that's even grosser. The song's called Ogre or The Parents' Crusade. And it's, it says, in the kingdom of Brynach, whatever, verging on a mighty crook of coquet, a dice of houses cast with clay and sheep dung through a soup of starlit peat smoke gradually emerges as we descend. Bring the goose, my child. I carve a notch into the squirming post. It smells like a smithy. Hurry now and drink the bowl before it congeals. There comes frightful news from town of great evil abound. The heartbroken potter's idiot boy was snatched from the spelt field. Scouring a fortnight in the hills, all they found, pointing from a, a set, a small gray hand, 
Tie the goats to my cot, with tansy rags their faces cover. Push straws into the window, damp the coals and bar the door with hornbeam limb. Blinding colors leap along the bemure tower walls, stretching as far as the eye can see. I am woke in icy beads by a clamor coming from the broad beans, the snapping of stems and a foul-smelling bloom. Paralyzed I watch my child's breath glide like a jellyfish across the black morning. When the sun is climbing, we'll find the harrow smothered in slime. We'll put it in the dog's noses. We'll break upon the heath. We'll dash across the ringing meadow. We'll weather a storm of living needles. We'll tarry by the pool of plenty. We'll hurry down the valley of eagles. We'll hear the distance of the North Sea. When the sun is dying, we'll cross the causeway of no memory. Our cheeks will billow in the dunes. We'll wade around the shoreline, the algae as a nap of fire. Below the surface of the water, in the face of the cliff, a ghastly doorway. We'll pitch a tent of pigskin on the beach. The ebbing tide will soon reveal its secrets. It's just kind of an interesting use of, of um, texture. Yes. In all his descriptions. Yeah, that, totally. Uh, that I find kind of disturbing, but mm-hmm. it also very interesting. And yeah, those are the lyrics to that song. Anyway, it's uh, I do I really do think that album. I really recommend it to people if they if they like that at all. Um, his album before this one called oh, sorry, I don't I don't have I don't, I could did I write it down? I didn't. Anyway, it's called Nothing Important. That's what it's called, and it's it has two four minute songs and then two sixty minute songs. Okay. And they're much more difficult than this. This is the album to start with, and then you move backwards into his career. Because right. he actually cut more normal. His album 2020 features electric guitar and songs that are kind of like more more normal narratives, even though they're still pretty crazy. But yeah, it's uh, I, re- I recommend his music. Uh, I, really, I really do like him a lot. Hmm. All right, so... So that's the mixtape, Mayor. What did you think about it overall? I liked it. Yeah, overall, you liked it? Overall, I liked it. Yeah, yeah it was good. Yeah. yeah, I think there was a pretty good average of, of songs that you liked to songs yep, that you were... Yep, I'd say so. And even songs that you weren't like... Even songs know, I didn't love, they weren't you still, bad. You still, yeah, they yeah. weren't bad or anything. Yeah, oh, so it's great. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even the songs you didn't like, you were wrong about, but that's that's cool too. <laughs> um, when I made Trevor Lynn this... Mixtape? This mixtape, he was kind enough to send me a mixtape. That's nice. Which I always appreciate. And the songs he chose for it, were interesting. Some some I knew. Okay. Some I didn't know. Yep. But some some were in different forms, like The Killing Moon, which is the Echo and the Bunnyman song. Mm-hmm. He sent in uh, a band called Nouvelle Vogue, or New Wave, as it would be in, in English, mm-hmm. who who do their songs as kind of like a sort of jazz or jazz or lounge music kind of uh, t- takes on the songs, right. which is kind of cool. He also sent Rocks Off by the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it wouldn't be a Rolling Stones song I would choose, but okay, cool. Yep. Love it. I mean, I do love the Rolling Stones, so what the heck. Impromptus, Opus 90 by Schubert, mm-hmm. which I don't know classical nomenclature very well. I assume, I always think of Schubert as being part of like the Romantic movement, which isn't like my most favorite classical movement period. I'm more of an Impressionist guy. I love my Ravel. I love my Debussy. Mm-hmm. I love my Ives, mm-hmm. you know, Stravinsky, stuff like that. So I'm more like kind of mid or early century, 20th century modern music. Right. Modern in quotation marks. Yep. Paranoid Android by Radiohead from one of the greatest albums of the 90s. Uh, OK Computer by... Then a song by Lousy Robot, a not quite, not quite perfect film, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, a song from Rodriguez, Crucify Your Mind. Very good. And then a Donizetti, I think it's an area from a, uh, an opera called L'Elysir d'Amour. Okay. A li- the love, love Potion. With Schubert and Donizetti, those are two things that I personally wouldn't do if I was doing a mixtape. I find it kind of takes me out of the out of the musical thing that you're making if yeah. it, the music is radically different than what else is yes. accompanying. Well, yeah, because I mean, you went like 
1962 present, right? Yeah, yeah. You didn't go earlier? Yeah. Yeah, because really, like, I find, like, if you... Like, I don't mind if I'm doing, like, a top five or whatever. I don't mind putting, like, a 50s song in there. Yeah. But if I'm making a mixtape, I find it too jarring to have songs that are from a different era of music yeah. together. So, I, I always say, like, post-Beatles or pre-Beatles, you're getting something different than you're getting post-Beatles. Yeah. To me, that's, like, the kind of cutoff line for me. Mm-hmm. I might put the Beach Boys on a little bit pre-Beatles, but right. not not much more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Holidays in the Sun by the Sex Pistols. One of the greatest songs ever, of course. How Sweet to Be an Idiot by Neil Innes. Once again, one of the greatest songs ever, which I first heard on Monty Python live at Drury Lane. Hmm. Neil Innes toured with them and he was kind of the he was kind of the musical interlude, so they would get changed into their costumes. Right. So he came out and uh, sometimes sometimes he'd walk out on stage really slowly wearing these giant uh, platform shoes. And it would take him like five minutes to shuffle across the stage and get all set up. Then he'd spend a lot of time tuning his guitar. And then say, uh, I suffered for my music, and now it's your turn. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, and then uh, Minor Swing by the Hot Club of Paris. Hot, you know, great jazz, sort of Django Reinhardt-inspired, uh, that kind of French jazz sound. Stefan Grappelli on, on uh, guitar influenced uh, Dan Hicks a lot. So I'm glad oh. I sent a Dan Hicks song to him on on the mixtape. Yeah. And then If You Believe Me by Gillen, which I think is Ian Gillen from uh, Deep Purple. Am I, am I right, Trevor? And then finally, Amberly, which he says, mystery artist, and then in brackets, term artist is used loosely. And the reason he says that is because he's overly mo- modest. It's actually him playing the song. <laughs> and it's a very good song. But I'm not going to play that song by him. I'm going to play a different song by him. Okay. This is a song called Newcastle, which Trevor sent to me a long time ago and asked me what I thought of it. And I loved it at the time. And I told him I loved it. And so I'm going to play it now because I think it's, it's a great song. Cool. And so let's give a listen. This is Trevor's band, which is called Concrete Brioche. And the song is called Newcastle. Cool. It's really kind of interesting. It has a bit of spoken word to it with sung elements. So I hope everyone enjoys this. You kept me warm with your tears 
So that was uh, Trevor Lynn and, and uh, Concrete Brioche. What do you think of that, Mayor? I liked it. It was good. Yeah, it's very beautiful. Yeah, isn't it? it's yeah. really nice. I really like that song. I hope Trevor's okay with me playing it. It was is in a public uh, yeah, file it's on, on, it's on, on SoundCloud. It's on SoundCloud, so you can't possibly object. You can't possibly object, Trevor. Anyway, <laughs> I really found that song beautiful, so I thought I'd play it for everyone to hear. Since Trevor was nice enough to send me those songs and a, a different song on his mixtape, and I really did enjoy his mixtape. And it was interesting listening to this song. And just after having gone through the songs, it's on the mixtape. It's interesting that there's some real parallels in the sound between the uh, songs that he chose for that and how and how that song sounded. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there we go. So cool. So I hope Trevor enjoyed that. I hope he didn't think my choosing such perverse side side enders was uh, me being perf per, per, uh, me being like perfect purposefully perverse. <laughs> I just really like those songs. So I and I and I was so wanted to like you know tell the world about them, you know. And so Trevor, you were the, the recipient and or victim of that excitement. <laughs> so there we go. So Mare. Yes. If you have nothing left to say. I don't. You're all talked out? Yep. Then maybe you want to tell people how they can get in touch with us. I just said I don't have anything left to say, Dad. <laughs> well, that makes it rather difficult. <laughs> uh, so if people are wanting to contact us, they can go to our website, sneakydragon.com. On there, you can find our Contact Us page, where you can find all of our contact information, including our snail mail address, as well as our Facebook page, Sneaky Dragon, our Twitter, Sneaky underscore Dragon, and our email address, sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. Um, on our website, you can also find each episode, and you can comment there. We have sort of a forum, I guess, under each episode. <laughs> you can comment and read things that other people say. Yes. Yep. That is true. Mary? Yes. I'm going to give you 100% accuracy on what you just said. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Well, with that, everyone, as usual, uh, we do look forward to hearing from you. I would really like to be able to wrap up the show with a, with a listener's comment episode. So if you think about it, please write mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, let us know what you think of the last couple of mixes. That we've, it's been a bit quiet around the old comment section, so it would be nice to hear from people. Yeah. And, and we'll see you in... 14 nights or <laughs> a fort night 14 nights uh-huh yes 
I guess we will. Or, as as people like to say commonly nowadays, we'll see you in a bye week. Not a thing. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.